Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, which I think is the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. Who are you? I think I'm David. What? Uh, it's been a long time. Yes. What's your name? Uh, who cares? Okay. Um, it has been a long time, so long that I forgot that I'm supposed to intro yeah. Movie Journal. I was like uh, asking you if you were ready to start, uh, but we are we are back to doing the Movie Journal. Last mm-hmm. one we did, we're just under a month. Wow. Okay. We're under, at least we didn't go a month without doing one. We okay. were just under a month. Um, and uh, so we got a lot of stuff to talk about. Absolutely. So let's, uh, let's quit dicking around. Why don't okay. you tell me uh, what you saw? So the first thing I saw since our last movie journal was The Big Short. Which was the last K. thing I saw Indeed. at the end of the last movie journal. This is like Apparently you sold me on it. Oh, well, this is like an episode of Angel or whatever with a cliffhanger. Right. And the cliffhanger is what did Tyler think about the, the big last, short about the big short? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I really liked it. I wouldn't say I loved it. I'm not, I wasn't as over the moon about it as some people, including myself. Um, I loved it. Right. And, but there's a lot to like about it and there's stuff that, and I think you described it this way. This is, this is probably the best thing the film has going for it. And it's considerable is you, you're like 75% into the film rooting for these people like rooting for (laughs) rooting for vindication right for christian bale especially but also steve carell like that they see this stuff coming down and everybody's mocking them everybody's making fun of them and they're just like just you wait and see and and i find myself being like yeah that's right assholes you'll all see and then i realize what i am rooting for right because I get so wrapped up in the characters rather than the issue, which is the best possible way to make an issue driven film. Right. And, yeah. uh, and I thought the way it was made was, was fun and, and not, not really cutesy. Uh, one could say that the way that they reveal certain aspects of the, of the banking industry, yeah. um, to be cutesy. I don't think it's that. I think it's, I still don't think it's super effective, uh, except for I that think- gambling one. Oh, see, that's funny that, that you one say because I feel like it's the, um, and now I'm already figuring the terminology, but the the one that is about turning old unsold fish into a new fish stew, that's the one that made the most sense to me. Well, it would make the most sense to you uh, because you love that. You love Anthony, it's Anthony Bourdain, right? Yeah, that, I didn't want to spoil who, oh, uh, who was in it, but yeah, um, it's Anthony Bourdain. No, but, uh, I mean, it's not just that because part I do it, like Anthony Bourdain. That analogy is very that, effective. Yeah, that, and exactly. That, uh, seeing it unfold actually makes sense. And I think, And I think for me, the gambling one works because you have the film making aspect as well which is you see these two people then you see those and then you just pull back and you see this whole long line right. of people all of them con- doing things contingent on this one thing over here right which i think is very interesting so um so i thought the filmmaking was was good um i i really thought steve carell was amazing yeah that scene where he's talking to that banker who's just so cocky and confident and you can just see the explosion waiting to happen (laughs) and when he gets up it's not big he simply says i want to short everything that guy touches (laughs) and it's just like there's there's such palpable rage in the film but it doesn't keep it from being funny again i I don't mean to say like i just because i wasn't over the moon about it like some people doesn't mean it's not a good movie it is a very very good movie way better than i would have expected from adam mckay frankly well, I don't know filmmaker. about that because I think 
Um, I think he's a very good filmmaker. I've seen, I haven't seen very many of his films, but I've seen Anchor, Anchorman and uh, Step Brothers. He, he is not a filmmaker that I would think of as particularly focused. And you need to be, you need to have focus for this. Well, and he's, I think so, he I mean, he's focused by his own rage. I sure. think you can feel his anger. No question. Um, but, re- but it would be easy when you, if you're directing a movie or making any art from a place of anger, it's easy to kind of strike out in all directions and try to capture as much of it as you can. Right. And I think he, by zeroing in on these characters and telling it from their point of view, I feel like that's a very, from a storytelling standpoint. And then there's, of all the stories within this that you choose to tell, that that's the one he goes with, I think was was great. So it's a very, yeah, I'm excited um, to see what he does next, actually, me as too. a director. Uh, one thing, quick, real quick, I want to mention about um, The Big Short is, and this is something that I feel like I talk about a lot. Um, when did we get to the point where in order for something to be classified a comedy, it has to be a straightforward, no holds barred, everything is about making you laugh comedy. Like to me, the big short is a comedy. I mm-hmm. would, that's if I had to put it somewhere in a video store, if those still existed, if I had to put the box in a department or yeah, in that's a, a section, yeah, it's absolutely. a comedy, but I feel like it's not being talked about as a comedy because we've become so narrow. Like, I feel like if Annie Hall came out now, people wouldn't, call it a comedy because it has too much emotion and characters in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it has to be like something, uh, like neighbors where it has, um, sort of some outlandish aspects and, uh, established comedy stars and, uh, everything's kind of, uh, shrill and obviously going for the joke at every moment. I'm not sure I agree. Um, because you do get in the world of like film nerds where, the kind of comedy that we find accept- like the only comedy that's that film nerds find acceptable are the ones with the drama and we're we're we're, we're I say we not you and me because yeah. we know what we're talking about when it because comes to comedy. Because we're comedy nerds yeah, yeah. as well. Like yeah. actually see I find yeah I find um film geeks as much as I love them and am one mm-hmm. uh and film critics are often the worst at understanding comedy no question about it you know and just like that's why film critics love neighbors even though it was one of the worst movies of the year um and uh and and also if you go back like look at the rotten tomatoes rating for what had american summer the movies like it's like 25 percent. like nobody liked it even though it's one of the funniest and most important comedies in the history of american cinema yeah it's I, i do feel like um Maybe it's because, you know, when you think about it from a critical standpoint, what are the two, not, I know one of them's a genre, one is not, but the two types of movies that are so often just destroyed by critics, horror and comedy. And when is the last time you were able to really dig into what makes you laugh or what scares you? You know, like those are two, I think, instinctive things that mm-hmm. yes, filmmakers are able to tap into, but as an audience, it's really hard. And you can say, oh, well that shot, I can understand why that shot made me scared. But then there are some things that will make you laugh and not somebody else. Right. There are some things that will scare you and not somebody else. And I feel like there's a there's an intangible quality to laughter and fear that I feel like critics, and I might be talking out of my ass, uh, that I feel like critics can't get their hands around and thus are maybe a bit more critical of. Maybe you're right. Yeah, I, where I think horror is um, one of the most exciting genres of film because it relies so little on like 
cinema is a bunch of art forms together, and mm-hmm. a lot of that is things like storytelling and, and stuff. But um, horror is without without getting into experimental non narrative cinema. Mm-hmm. Horror is one of the genres that is or can be when done right closest to pure cinema oh, because sure. it relies so much on the tools of movie making in the way that uh, sound and image over the fourth dimension uh, can affect the, the, the viewer. Um, I, I, I think, I think really, really exciting things happen in horror and that's, uh, it's one of my favorite th- genres because of that. Even both, I don't watch nearly enough horror. We both have, 20 movies to get to yep. and this is how we all right well, let's end move on our to, discussion i wanted to show. talk too much about this one um it's not a comedy although it should be okay uh it was called david gordon green's our brand is crisis oh okay. uh, it's a disaster this movie unfortunately okay. because it is too movie it's schizophrenic in that sense that occasionally it turns into a like Wolf of Wall Street style, outrageous, cynical comedy. Mm-hmm. And it's great when it's that. And that's what it should be. But then it flip flops back and forth between being that and being very heavy handed and moralizing and preachy. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work at all there. I don't think David Gordon Green shines at that sort of thing. Right. And it's not the kind of like, I don't need that kind of stuff in my movies anyway. Like, I don't need you to be preachy unless you, we'll, we'll talk about a preachy movie later that's one of my favorite movies of the year. But, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, it's it's mostly dull and a, a waste of talent, um, uh, both in front of and behind the camera. David Gorgon can be great. Tim Orr is a great cinematographer. And you've got uh, Sandra Bullock and um, Billy Bob Thornton and Ann Dowd. And uh, uh, who else is... No, I'm trying to... I feel like maybe... Is Hamish Linklater, I think, is in that? Like, uh, a, a lot of very good actors. And occasionally they're... Uh, great when the movie's funny, um, but it way too often just backtracks into this just sludge of just heavy handedness. The, yeah, when I saw the trailer for it, that's one of those movies that I see the trailer for and I think like, yeah, all right, maybe. And then you see directed by David Gordon Green and I have two thoughts. One is, oh, I'm more interested. And the other is, oh, yeah, he's Uh-oh. made a lot of stinkers. Yeah. And just like I, he's one of those directors that when he's on, it's amazing. But I also wonder, what is it about this film that made producers think, you know who the guy to direct this is? <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you ever see that movie, George Washington? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, it makes no sense to me. But yeah, that was one that I that I had missed that I was interested in. And that would have been a that was a very much a movie pass movie. Um, and I missed it. And I think I'm I'm OK with that. Well, there are some movies that like it. They didn't. They don't even land with a thud. They they land with so little noise that yeah. be, like going into awards season before people had seen our brand is crisis. It was yeah. one of the fall movies, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like based on a true story. You've got um, Sandra Bullock. There was this whole uh, backstory about how um, in the documentary and in the original screenplay, Sandra Bullock's character was male and right. he's male, and Sandra Bullock had specifically asked her like agents and management to, she was not unhappy with the roles she was seeing. And she specifically asked them find out if there are any movies out there where the producer would be willing to change the gender of, of the character. And so there was, and that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, and, um, so there was that sort of fanfare and the movie came out and everyone like decided to forget that we'd ever talked about it. <laughs> like yeah. it just like completely went away. All right. What's next for you? Next for me is Ron Howard's in the heart of the sea. Okay, I saw that one. Which I have specifically, we talked about 
we talked about it when you saw it. Okay. It's been so long that I was like, I might have seen it since we did the last one of these. No, we, we had talked about it before. Um, I specifically had wanted to see it in the theater and I'm glad I did worthwhile. Yeah, it is beautiful. That is some great cinematography. Like just, and everything just feels, this is going to sound like a negative, but it's not. Everything just feels so drenched and waterlogged all the time. It feels like, like the, like everything is, is shot through, uh, like the bottom of a glass or something like Uh that. Again, in a good way, because it just makes you feel like, it is impossible to be comfortable in this situation, even right. when things are going well. Right. Um, and so I, I love the way it was shot. I, I love, I think the story itself is interesting. I think there are uh, the, the sequences with, you know, the, the whale attacks are very, uh, very frightening and very intimidating. And it kind of makes you wonder like, why did it take so long for a whale to realize I'm way bigger than this ship? <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the acting is, is good. Uh, you know, it, I, I personally feel like it'd be better if people just, just, just choose whatever accent you want. Just go with yours. Who cares? You know? Oh yeah. Uh, um, last temptation of Christ style. Absolutely. No question it's, about it. It's fine. Like I just, I'm so with you on that. Just show yeah. people Last Nation of Christ and say, see, Harvey Keitel talked like Harvey Keitel. So many people and, have a problem with that, though. You and I are, are, I wouldn't say we're the exception, but there are a lot of people like, I couldn't get over Harvey Keitel. You know, Jude is talking like he's from New York. It's like, who gives a shit? Yeah, who gives a shit? Like, it's... I, I don't care. It's like, I'm not listening. I'm listening to... I, I'm watching his face. I'm hearing the emotion in his voice. I don't, yeah. you know. And when you have all the to go off on last temptation for a moment when you have all the Romans be British and all the, uh, Jews be American. it's like, all right, so there's consistency uh-huh. and, and it's often like New York American, like uh-huh. John Lurie's in there. And, um, uh, then it's like, okay, there's consistency, British American, uh, done. No problem. I'm yeah. with you. Yeah. It bothers me. That yeah, people... It's not like they'd be speaking English at all. So exactly. unless you want to go full, like passion to the Christ. Yeah. Um, which still couldn't even fully commit to verisimilitude because it cast a you know a white American like yeah. guy, <laughs> uh, a guy, a guy who can pass for ethnic, but that's about <laughs> as far as you can go. Um, and so, to go back to in the heart of the seat, yeah, that that bothered me a little bit. Um, boy, that script is <laughs> bad. It is just so cheesy, and I, cheese doesn't bother me necessarily, no, but I feel like it, it needs to be kind of earned. Um, and I do like, uh, I like one of the, I, I don't remember the name of the actor, but he played the captain, um, yeah, of the ship name now too. I like the choice to go with somebody that is not known, but the problem with that is that, well, he is known to the many, many fans of Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunter. Oh, that's okay. That's where I've seen him before. Yes. Um, I never saw that movie, but that's him. But I feel like the problem with that is that you have because the script says this is a story of two men, the captain and the first mate. I yeah. don't remember their names. And she's like, okay, well, the first mate's played by Thor. Uh, the captain's played by a guy whose name I don't recall and who I think I saw somewhere. Gosh, I wonder who I'm going to be rooting for. You know what I mean? But it, like, it doesn't even turn into, even if it were protagonist and adversary, like yeah. that 
the, any sense of them like having some sort of great duel of wits or of minds or of wills fizzles out so quickly. Yeah. That it's weird that it's even in there that Brendan yeah. Gleeson's character says that it's about them. Yeah. I, that, they, again, like I said, when we talked about it before, the whole framing device could be excised with no problem whatsoever. No problem at all. Even though it's always nice to see Ben Wishaw. Yeah. I've said before, whenever Ben Wishaw is in a movie, I expect him to address everyone as Sixsmith. Uh, and I feel, like it could, I feel like it could have worked in this film, yeah. too. Um, all right. Uh, the next movie I saw, you have also seen, I believe, it's David O. Russell's Joy. Yes, I did see um, that. Oh, that'll, that will save us some time. That's nice. Okay, good. Um, I don't have much to say about it, except to... what's. I'm in a position of, I didn't really like it that much, mm-hmm. but I kind of want to defend it because so many people really don't like it. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's an admirable effort and, um, there are sequences in it. Um, like Bradley Cooper's character giving the yeah. tour of the QVC operation to yeah. Jennifer Lawrence's character. That's one of the best scenes in any movie this year. Yeah. Quite literally orchestrating. Yeah. Uh, um, something that you would think is the most, disposable thing in the world <laughs> right uh and that's uh and i actually love bradley cooper's performance i think jennifer lawrence is one of those actors like i talk about i feel like i'm repeating myself but there are certain actors who are so consistently good that it's not worth mentioning that they're good mm-hmm. it's like yeah jennifer lawrence is great in this movie it's a jennifer yeah. lawrence movie but bradley cooper is someone who i for some reason keep forgetting like every year i forget that bradley cooper's a good actor yeah. and then he's really even even in something like american sniper which i thought was one of the worst movies of last year he's fantastic wonderful um and he's great here there's a there's a lot of great stuff like that um the the sort of um the 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 scene at the beginning is kind of the the introduction to her home when uh when when her robert dino her father comes back he has left uh, they're separated he and her mother uh and you get sort of this through the scenes that are taking place or, or the extent one long extended scene if you want it to be you're getting this um entire introduction to not only the physical layout of the home but um the way that the spaces of the home and the people who occupy it occupy space in jennifer lawrence's character's mind yeah it's a there's so there's a number of really great sequences uh i just think it doesn't hang together but i think it's a better movie than american hustle which i think a lot more people like yeah um the people you mentioned that a lot of people don't like it those people are stupid and wrong uh (laughs) I, Again, I don't think they're wrong because I also don't think it's that I'd give it maybe a C plus B minus. But I go, like I go B plus A minus. It's it's rotten. Uh, not everything is comes down to a rotten tomato score, but it's an right. easy shorthand. It's like under sixty percent. It's like an F. Yeah, those people are wrong. Okay. Okay. An F is wrong for this movie. It's factually incorrect. Okay. F stands for factually incorrect. <laughs> um, yeah, I love the movie. I thought, it, and I didn't expect to. I, I didn't. I didn't know anything that it was about. I walked in uh, pretty blind, just kind of having an expectation of David O. Russell. This felt a lot like Silver Linings Playbook. Um, A lot of people said that it was tonally inconsistent. I would agree with that. And I feel like it really, I don't think it is. I feel like it's, if it's all about, if it's all character, if it's all from her perspective, as the, as the, the house is, then every, then we have tremendous affection for characters that are horrendously unstable. And more than anything to me, there's this idea of, of even, even though they're, because a lot of people have a problem that like, well, it goes from funny to, to dire. And to me, it's like, yes, because 
even even though members of her family are charming and goofy, this is not sustainable. And she knows it. And it's only a matter of time be- before it does become dire. And it does. And, I, and I'm okay with that. And I think it works really well. And, um, and then I personally, uh, I like the story. And I like what the story has to say as a free market capitalist. But I feel like um, the story, uh, sure, in terms of that, I understand. But in terms of her journey, it almost feels like, and this might happen in this episode, let's say you and I are doing a movie journal, right? Okay. And we're getting through a bunch of movies and then we suddenly realize, Oh shit, we've been going too long. Let's burn through these last few. Mm. That's kind of how the movie feels like the, the part that it thinks is the climax doesn't feel climactic to me. And so when suddenly it jumps like 10, 15 years for like, uh, I guess what would be the denouement. Yeah. It feels like, Oh, I guess we're wrapping up. It, like it didn't, it, it, it didn't feel like, I guess that's what I mean when I say it didn't hang together. Um, I'll say this before we move on. I can see. Well, I can see what you're saying about the, okay. the the climax. Is that it seems like like an anticlimax. The climactic scene emotionally is the one that precedes it. In the hotel yeah. in California. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, real quick, uh, and I said I love Bradley Cooper. I also love Elizabeth Rome in this movie. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, um, she's marvelous. Whom you know, I'm guessing from Law and Order. Of course, I know her from Angel. Okay. Um, second mention of Angel. That's because I've been rewatching Angel, um, and. So the last movie I saw Elizabeth Roman was American Hustle, where she played Jeremy Renner's character's wife. Mm-hmm. The other day, my wife and I are rewatching Angel season one, and there's a scene where Jeremy Renner, as a vampire, is trying to kill oh. Elizabeth Roman's character. And I was like, I wonder, I bet they talked about that when they made American Hustle. <laughs> oh, and then I was like, wait, maybe that's. Maybe they're like still friends from that. Uh, maybe that's why they're working together in David Russell movies now, or at least in the one. Uh, so if anyone has any insight onto the potential friendship between Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Rome, uh, fill me in because I don't know how I've watched Angel so many times. I don't know how it only occurred to me recently. Like, cause he's not in one scene. He's like the villain of the episode. Okay. Jeremy Renner, the one episode he's in. Uh, he obviously, this was before the Hurt Locker. He was not an Academy Award nominated person. Um, at that point, what's that reference to an Academy award nominated person? Yeah, I don't know. I okay. can't place it. All right. Well, listeners can tell me. Yeah. Um, David, oh. if you want, you can always, you could like write a story yeah, uh, about a them, them, yeah, them being exactly. best buds. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Going on adventures, cr- cross country drives. Yeah. Okay. So next is me, right? Yep. Okay. Next for me is Peter Landsman's the uh, the concussion sorry just concussion just concussion um, there are many it's not just the one <laughs> there's a bunch of them <laughs> there's a whole yeah. bunch of them um, concussions that'll be the sequel yeah it's like alien yeah um, predators absolutely oh, no predators. question um, so yeah uh, so here is okay there's a lot of good in the movie Will Smith is good Albert Brooks of course wonderful good uh, wonderful as always um, I thought it was shot really well um the story is inherently interesting. David Morris, heartbreakingly wonderful, mm-hmm. as one would expect. Um, I liked Alec Baldwin. A lot of a lot of good elements there. But I and I, but a I think it should have it probably would have been a much better documentary, um, or they needed they need to shape that script a little bit more because the way you talked about it was that he just keeps getting affirmed over and over and over again. And I, I see what you mean there. Here's the issue. I think, I don't think he's being affirmed any more than, uh, 
Jeffrey Wigand in The Insider. Yeah. I don't think, I think the issue is that in The Insider, we have a very clear idea of what, of what and who he is up against and what they're willing to do. We have an early scene with Michael Gambon. We see bullet in the mailbox. We see people watching him as he, as he's driving golf balls. We see this stuff constantly. Whereas in concussion, everything is just sort of hinted at, if not just not said, um, or, and certainly not shown. Doesn't it feel like casting Paul Reiser and Luke Wilson and these small, do you think maybe there are, there's stuff like what you're talking about on the cutting room floor? Probably. And it shouldn't have been because we need, like they do a good job with Albert Brooks's character outlining that, I, that there's that line. It's a really good line. It's like you're going up against a company that owns a day of the week. Yeah. You're making them very powerful, but they don't look very powerful. They don't look like they have a lot of stuff at their disposal. And I just feel like they underline the problem wonderfully, like not just David Morse, but all these other characters. And you just see how, horrible their lives have become as a result of this and you see will smith's passion and that's all well and good but you need to see the push back mm-hmm. against him and with, when you don't have that then it just looks like hey isn't this guy great and look at every and we all think so so let's just do it um and i feel like that was that's a major script issue or maybe a, a cutting issue where they cut out more right. of the opposition than they should have um quick question because i want to follow up on something that i said and okay. see if you noticed it um because i was not even bothered more confused by just how conspicuous um, Ben and Amalu's uh, financial comfort yes, is you had in the movie. That. And, I, and so and I was you, watching it with that. In yeah. Mind. Cause you offered an explanation, uh, which is that it's trying to show that he doesn't need to do that. Like he's comfortable. He's doing right. this out of the goodness of his heart and he could be yeah. more comfortable without it. Did you, did you see a good motivation for how uh, conspicuous it is? I, I could see it being that, he is a successful man mm-hmm. and over the course of the film, certain things are kind of stripped away from him and he often winds up having to pay for autopsies himself. Yeah. And so when you see that this man who has a great deal of money, he's now putting that money towards something that nobody wants, uh, but that is the right thing. So I'm okay with it. It does seem an odd choice, but also maybe it's made, it's meant to make him look not super sympathetic when he and Albert Brooks are talking about the right color of <laughs> what Mercedes or, or, or BMW or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, see, that's how much you and I are men of the people. We don't yeah. even know yeah. what those, you know, I drive a Kia soul. I drive a Ford fusion that, Ooh, look at you. Yeah. Uh, and so, so maybe it's meant to make him seem a little bit, hang on now. I'm thinking, hang on. <laughs> okay. We don't have a lot of time. Sorry. Maybe. So everything about the film, and I think they do an okay job with this. They could have done a better job is making him the, a term that is very popular these days is making him the other. There's an okay. otherness to him. He's not American. Right. He doesn't understand football. And on top of that, when you think of what football is, and I apologize if I'm, if I'm uh, being too reductive, but football is a very blue-collar sport. Blue-collar people love it. He lives in, in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah. And so, like, very blue-collar town, and he is not a blue-collar guy. Right. So, the, on top of everything else, he is so far, point, he's yeah. so far removed like from the people that most want this Aside from the people that stand to make a lot of money, there's also the people that are in favor of it. And so, I don't know, maybe it's that. Um, I like that. Uh, real quick, I don't know, we're talking, we're talking too much about concussion, okay. but another thing that was either cut out or 
uh, wasn't in there and should have been was, I, I don't know if this is based on real life, um, but in the movie, uh, his wife played by Gugu Mbatha-Ra becomes a football fan as a result of him watching yeah. football. That is a really interesting idea to me. Yeah. Again, something they don't really follow through on. They don't show us why you hear him talk about, like, I see the grace of the game or whatever, but we don't see yeah. like, we need some real NFL films type stuff in there to, uh, yeah. Uh, moments like that feel more perfunctory. Like they, like they want to pay a little bit of lip service to like, look, we get it. People like football. There's a lot of good stuff to it, but we think it's like, it felt um, like a yeah footnote. So, um, real quick, you mentioned documentary. There is not about Ben and Amalu, but there is a documentary made by the great Steve James, who oh, made good. Hoop Dreams and, and whatnot, and Stevie, and uh, what else? Uh, Life Itself. Uh, Life Itself, yeah. Um, uh, called Head Games, that is about concussions in sports. Oh, that's great. Uh, it's, I just, it's really good. I, would, yeah. I will want to watch it, because it certainly gave me... A lot of people have said that they that this could be like the blackfish of the NFL. Uh-huh. It's like, I, I doubt it, but at yeah. the same time... Uh, it certainly got me really interested. And when it comes right down to it, Jen and I do not have any children, but if we do, if, and they decide they want to play football, I will have, I will take a moment and think like, Oh, well watch head games. And you will feel that way about volleyball (laughs) and soccer and hockey. And like, Head Games pretty much makes a point that, like, yeah, sports for kids especially are dangerous for the head. Well, you know, there's only one thing that you don't have to worry about getting your, you know, hurting your head, and that's uh, watching movies. All right. Um, and even then, it's maybe from an intellectual standpoint. Yeah. It can be. Uh, uh, real quick, I, uh, my next one is a rewatch, but a recent this year rewatch. I don't know if you've seen it yet. You've got the DVD sitting right here, right there. Okay. It's called Mistress America. I'm not, no, I haven't watched it yet. Okay. Um, Sometimes I really love doing a, a rewatch of this stuff, this stuff that, you know, cause I, I have my end of the year up until our best of episode, which is, so I'm still going to do it now, like catching up on stuff I didn't see. I also like taking time to rewatch some of the stuff from earlier in the year, you know, mm-hmm. Mistress America came out over the summer. Um, and, uh, rewatching it has bumped it higher up on my list. Um, because maybe part of it is that, uh, and I, back, back in the middle of the summer, I was taking for granted, um, that it was a funny movie. And now like looking at my list of the movies I saw this year, there aren't that many great comedies this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did enjoy Mr. America more the second, even more the second time. I liked it to begin with even more the second time because it's really, truly funny. Uh, and there's just not enough of that in, <laughs> in, in movies, especially in good movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to talk too much about it. I've already talked about it, but, okay. uh, Mistress America. It's great. What's okay. next for you? Uh, next for me is an independent film called star Wars, the force awakens. Oh, I saw that. So that'll knock one of mine off. Later. Absolutely. Um, I don't think I would say I loved it. Um, I really liked it. I really responded to it. I enjoyed it tremendously. Um, there's not much that can be said. I did write a, I wrote a review of it for the, for the site. So you can read that. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And what, what's interesting to me and you, you and I talked about this off mic. Um, the stuff that people don't like about the film, uh, which I have pretty much avoided. And you know, like I'll read it and I'll be like, man, they've all, they've got a lot of good points except one. Okay. There are people that do and listeners, spoilers, I guess, whatever. Come on. Okay. You've probably no, we seen should it. Say spoilers, 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 the force awakens. And, and I don't even know if it's Episode this seven. much, if it's that much of a spoiler, the way I'm going to talk about it, but okay. just in case, um, people don't like Kylo Ren 
for all the reasons that I love Kylo Ren. Why don't people? Yeah, I don't. I haven't heard. They think he's like a petulant little brat, and I feel like that's why I love him. Yeah, we haven't seen a villain like that before, and and a temperamental villain makes him so much more dangerous. Yeah, and and unstable and and unpredictable. Like what they they just wanted another Darth Vader, maybe. Probably. And to that I say, isn't there enough stuff in this movie that is just like a new hope? <laughs> yeah. Like, isn't it nice to have a few things that are different? Yeah. I, this, that's coming from someone who loves the movie. B, B plus. Yeah. Um, um, I would say B plus in my head mm-hmm. and A in my heart. Uh, that's probably about right. Yeah. Um, you know, what's funny is just, uh, I tweeted this the other day as a joke and then I realized I completely believe this, that when I say that I've only seen star Wars once, I feel like Charlie bucket <laughs> yeah, saying that. that he'd only bought two Wonka bars. Yeah. Um, yeah, everyone's a, seen it a bunch. It's astounding to me how many people, including me <laughs> yeah. just assume it's like, okay, I saw it the once. So that's out of the way. Uh, two or three uh, time, two or three. And then obviously we're all going to buy it. Uh, right. that's coming up. Did you see the onion articles? I did not. What is uh, that? Um, guy who saw Star Wars six times over the holidays thought it was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so I, I guess uh, there are my, oh, my favorite onion related onion Star Wars related headline from recent weeks was uh, guy in Chewbacca costume unsure whether to buy a ticket for Star Wars or the Big Short. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't it be funny if you show up yeah. in costume but you didn't get a ticket ahead of time and so it's all sold out it's like <laughs> yeah uh, sure what the uh, um, conco- yeah. uh, one for concussion yeah. please <laughs> um yeah i really i really enjoyed it and i don't know of anybody that didn't like it yeah you know yeah. there are people that are a little picky about it uh and that's and that's fine you're welcome to do to be that and it it doesn't hold up to every level of scrutiny um but uh yeah, but is, i feel I mean, like Star Wars has always been broad strokes and in the broad strokes, it's great. Yeah. Do you feel like this is, do you feel like the force awakens is, I, I guess part of me, cause I, I joked about how similar it is to a new hope. Yeah. But I think maybe I'm more forgiving of that because the prequels are so bad. Like I think a lot of, if there are. weren't prequels and this, there was just a huge gap, like from 83 to now, yeah. right? There are never any prequels. This is the first Star Wars movie since then. Yeah. Would we like it as much? I don't think so. I don't think I would. I think people I think part would of it see is those similarities like, and think of it as almost a cop out. Yeah. Whereas, um, the bar has been set so low that it really is yeah. just like, Oh, thank God when it like doesn't suck. Yeah. This and film this is coming from someone who really liked the movie, but yeah, the this film had to do double duty. It had to be a genuine extension of the first three and doing everything it can to, be a palate cleanser and wash the taste out of your mouth of the, uh, of the, the prequels. And I think it does both pretty well. And in doing, and in doing the latter, it maybe doesn't do the former quite so well because, and it winds up being a little bit repetitive and maybe even a little bit fan servicey, but I'm mm-hmm. still okay with it. And it was still a very, a very effective film for me. All right. Uh, next up for me is a um, movie I've been looking forward to seeing for almost a year. Uh, okay. I first heard of it when um, Matt, uh, our, our guy Matt Warren, came back from Sundance last year and came on the on the show. This is uh, Sean Baker's Tangerine. Okay. Um, again, I don't know if you've watched it yet. I have not. Okay. It is on my. It's on my list. It's on Netflix. Uh, oh, okay. So everyone can watch it right now. Um, and people should. It's uh, it's really good. And um, I mean you. Uh, it's good on its own terms, but mm-hmm. there is also this whole 
there are things around it like the fact that it was made on an iphone yeah. and it was made kind of kind of guerrilla style um and that it's a it's about a subject matter that either anyone with a lot of money either wouldn't make this movie mm-hmm. about the subject matter or they would make it a um heavy-handed social drama yeah Whereas or t- like a quirky indie kind right, of thing. like but tangerine is about people who live hard lives mm-hmm and it's a comedy, but it's not making fun of them. It's sort of recognizing it's a true, like this is a corny term, but it's a true slice of life mm-hmm. comedy in, yeah. in that like, it's not a life. Most people are, are yeah, familiar with. Yes. And it's like, yes, this, th- this is a hard life they live, but they also live it every day. And mm-hmm. they're, they have, um, like even here, like, um, when people talk about, uh, I feel like it, this, this, um, phrase has gone out of, style and thank God. But, uh, people used to say like first world problems are a lot. Yeah. And that's, uh, I always found that really patronizing because, um, the truth is that people in the third world have, yes, they have huge problems that we thankfully don't really have here on a, on a macro, uh, scale, but they are also bothered by everyday things. Yeah. They had their, their lives are, they're, they're 100% human, just like all of us. Yeah. And, um, tangerine is sort of a version of that in that it's, uh, it doesn't shy away from the, um, uh, the danger of, uh, their daily lives or the, um, harassment that they, um, suffer, but it's also just about their lives. It's about, you know, two girlfriends. One of them finds out from the other one that her boyfriend cheated on her while she was away, mm-hmm. uh, by away it's in prison, but that's not the point here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and they spend the whole, uh, it's a, it's all an all in one day movie is yeah. Christmas Eve. Um, actually, um, oh, I wish I'd seen it Christmas and, Eve. Yeah. It would have put me in the Christmas spirit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they spend the movie trying to find, uh, trying to find her boyfriend who has been cheating on her to confront him. Uh, and meanwhile, a bunch of other things are going on. It, it's a, it's a really fun movie. It's only about 85, 90 minutes. And, uh, it's, uh, it's fantastic, and the the leads um, are are really good. There's not a lot. The only recognizable actor in it is uh, James Ransone, mm-hmm. with Ziggy on uh, yeah. The Wire, and he's great. Um, he doesn't show up until near the end. Um, and then there's also uh, stand-up comedian that you and I would recognize. Most people, Jerry don't. Seinfeld. Nope. Um, Ian Edwards. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I like has, him. A, has a small role. Uh, let me ask you this in regards to Tangerine, because as you were talking about shot on an iPhone, done guerrilla style, when you hear that, regardless of what the story, what the film might be about, when you hear that, does that make you more or less likely to see it or more I or think, less excited to see it? I think if that were what I heard first, I would be skeptical. Okay. But I think it's to the film's credit that speaks to the film being good that that wasn't what I heard first. Coming out okay. of Sundays, I heard this is a great movie. Great. And then, by the way, it's it was shot on an iPhone. Okay. Um, yeah. with like, it, they had uh, like an extra lens attached and they did some things to it. Sure. It doesn't look like if you and I went out and shot on an iPhone. Yeah. Uh, one more thing about Tangerine, unless you have something you want to say. Well, I just, I, to me, I feel like they do the film a disservice when I say they, I could mean like critics, I can mean whatever. Do, I think they do the film a disservice by talking about these limitations because then people I think it forces people to be like well hey for an iPhone movie uh, <laughs> right. it was pretty good and it's just like if you didn't know it was shot on an iPhone it and it's still great 
Mm-hmm. Then that means it's great. But I feel like you just immediately make people, including me, like it's the, it's one of the first things I heard about it. And I immediately thought like, all right, so am I now expected to cut it slack? No, you should read. Well, first you should watch the movie. Then you should read the AV club article that just went up today, I think, or yesterday. They're doing a thing where they're, um, recommending, uh, movies from this year that are almost not, uh, almost impossible to get Oscar nominations, but saying, Hey, this movie should be considered for this category. And there was a thing written today about, um, Tangerine for best cinematography. Oh, inter- uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would recommend reading that after you watch the movie. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Uh-huh. Those Oscars may not know what they're doing when it comes to Tangerine, uh-huh. but so far I can't guarantee it. I think the BPs are going to do right by Tangerine. Okay. <laughs> just a, um, just a hunch. Um, are people already sending in their yep. nominations? I, I want to see more stuff before I send it. I know to you. I've got until um, we've got until the 15th guys. Come on. Yeah. Um, but then you don't want to have to be tallying everything uh, at the last minute. I love it. Uh, all right. Um, one more thing about Tangerine people who have listened to the show for a long time or talked to me about people who know me and talk to me about movies know that especially when a movie takes place in a place that I'm familiar with, I love movies that are, um, that show fidelity to their geography mm. and Tangerine is takes place in a, it's essentially except for one trip up the red line to the Hollywood and Highland stop, which again is all things that I take the red line all the time. Yeah. And I know that stuff essentially takes place on Santa Monica Boulevard from, uh, West Hollywood to Vermont, like okay. Vermont Avenue. And it's not only is it all shot where it takes place, but also when they're walking East on Santa Monica and they're encountering different people and there's the different vignettes, the editing is still there. He didn't take a shot of them walking from further down the block right. and put it earlier. Like everything makes sense. If you know the neighborhood, it yeah. really does follow. Like that's exactly where they would go from here to here to here to get to there. And that's exactly where that burrito place is. I know there, I know that I've gotten a burrito there. Like I, I love that stuff. I wonder given the the nature of the filmmaking, I wonder if some of that is just the film, the director being like, I don't have the energy yeah. to be juggling things around. They're in front of the burrito place. We know that. Right. Yeah. You know, but, um, like I, for a while when I was doing closed captioning for a weekend, for a week, for a living, that's mm-hmm. what I did. I've, I, I don't see what my job is, but I'm happy to say what my job used to be. Sure. When I used to do closed captioning, I lived, um, just South of Santa Monica on Van Ness and I worked just North of Santa Monica on Highland and I took the bus to and from, or rode my bike, um, to and from work. Mm-hmm. So the terrain traversed by these characters in this movie is very, very familiar to me. So, uh, it was definitely a part of the delightful experience for me was, uh, how, how, how true it was. Absolutely. Uh, what's next for you? Next for me, uh, I watched this as a function of my, uh, Krampus episode of more than one lesson. I watched Clive Donner's 1984, a Christmas Carol starring George C. Scott, which I had never seen before. Um, you know, that story has been adapted many, many times and I had yeah. never seen this one. And for many people, uh, including my co-host at the time, uh, Reed Lackey, uh, for many, this is their favorite adaptation of a Christmas Carol. Um, and it was very good. I don't know if I've seen it either. It's, what are the, what are the other big ones? Who are, who was the big Scrooges? Alistair Sim. Okay. Uh, Albert Finney. Oh, that's the one I know. Okay. Yes. Uh, that's the one I watched. George C. Scott, Michael Caine, Patrick Stewart are probably okay. Patrick Stewart having done it on stage and then doing a, a, a movie of it. Uh, I think a TV movie, but still, um, and yeah, I, I definitely saw Albert Finney. That's yeah. I have not seen that one. Uh, and so 
yeah, it's it's really good. What I like is that it just it it makes feel it makes everything feel very lived in. Um, I think there's whenever whenever somebody's adapting Dickens, I feel like there's uh, a temptation to really just art direct the hell out of this thing. Um, and it's still, that's always pleasurable to look at and it makes sense why you would do it. But this one really tried to ground it in like a dirty, gross London with a particularly prickly and, uh, malevolent and, um, Oh, what do you call it? Not malicious, but just, uh, sadistic okay uh a sadistic ebenezer scrooge who takes a lot of pleasure in just being a total asshole like to the point where he's not just grumpy which george c scott could do in his sleep (laughs) but there's a there's a real acid to the way he he talks to people like he says it with a big old grin on his face and it's and he I, i don't necessarily Love the movie. I like it a lot. And I think he's a very interesting Scrooge. Uh, and I, I, I'm glad I saw it. Okay. Uh, moving on to a movie that uh, you saw much earlier in the year, uh, Michael Almereda's Experimenter. Oh, yeah. Um, which I was um, sad that I had missed when it was in the theater, but uh, got to catch up with it. And uh, I really liked it. Yeah. It's it's a very interesting movie. And the the filmmaking is very strange and well, kind of fascinating. It's almost like it's a mix between a like biopic mm-hmm. and then like, um, uh, almost like a filmed presentation. Like if, if Stanley Milgram were giving a like slideshow presentation of his life and his work, yeah, this would be like a sort of, um, more imaginative, you know, uh, exaggerated version of that where yeah. he spends a lot of time talking to the camera. Occasionally the locations are not realistic. They look like they're on a stage where, you know, yeah. he goes to visit his, um, mentor. He and his wife would visit his mentor and it's literally just a stage and their house quote unquote is a backdrop, like yeah. it's painted on the, on the backdrop. Um, and he addresses the camera, um, a lot, there'll be times when they're walking around and then there's a real live elephant walking behind them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's, um, the, um, this is not my interpretation. This is someone else. I said, uh, read said that that's the, uh, with his experiments being what they are about obedience. That's the Holocaust being the quote unquote elephant in the room. That that's what that's about. That's, that's why a- it's, that's why it's behind him, uh, when he's talking and it's only at, um, I forget what university he did those at. I don't recall now. Uh, but it's it's only in the in that location. It's not yeah. in the actual experiment scenes. It's in the hallway outside of them. But yeah. Two times you see the elephant. It's in the location where he did the um, thing. That's 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 a that's a fascinating interpretation. That would explain why it's an elephant. Um, I think I'm I think I'm on board with that. I don't think that's definitively how it is, but that's not bad. Yeah. I, I can't I can't refute it. Yeah. Um, especially given why he started these experiments in the first place. Um, and that it's always there in the back of his mind. Um, yeah. And then I just, the, but also just in those sequences where there's just backdrops instead of actual settings and, and sets and stuff. Um, just the artificiality of the world that he lives in to the point where I believe he breaks the news to his students about, I believe the Kennedy assassination. Oh, right. And they just assume that it's, that he's doing an experiment on them now. Yeah. And, just that scene I think is so powerful because you realize, Oh, he's an argument could be made that it's his fault yeah. at this point, 
but it's, you know, and then also choosing to have so many scenes take place on the set of the movie that's being made about him. Right. Which, where Den- Dennis which are, Haysbert plays Ossie Davis. Yeah. And another actor plays William Shatner. Yeah. And, and then he has a William Shatner has a speech about how he had the first interracial kiss on TV. Yeah. That's such a weird scene. That I loved it. Yeah. And just I looked the, at that movie, by the way, mm-hmm. the 10th level. Oh, of course I did dreadful. as well. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely horrible. But, and then, and so, so much of it is taking so much of the, the actual human interaction is taking place on actual sets that are heightened and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on in that movie that I think is so many yeah. choices that are just so fascinating. And, um, in addition to Peter Sarsgaard, obviously being great because he's Peter Sarsgaard, uh, one on a writer is awesome and mm-hmm. has had a real, um, I don't think you watched show me a hero, I did right? but she's had a great year between those two things that I, I hope, I hope we get a good resurgence of Winona Ryder um, because uh, she's really fantastic in both those things. And you, but you've also got this great rotating cast mm-hmm. of um, uh, small scenes with um, Taron Manning has a couple of scenes. You've got uh, Goose from Top Gun, um, Anthony yeah. Edwards. Uh, John Leguizamo is great. Uh, Anton Yelchin is great. Uh, Jim Gaffigan's really good. Anton Yelchin is r- really special. Yeah. And, and, he he needed to be given the character that he's playing. Yeah. Uh, Jim Gaffigan is delightful. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, what's next for you? Um, next for me is Rick Alverson's Entertainment. Oh, yay! <laughs> One of my favorite movies of the year, indeed. Um, even though I would hesitate to recommend it to almost anyone sure. other than maybe you. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that recommendation would be well taken because I loved it. Good. I'm glad. Uh, boy, oh boy. I lo- I loved it. Like I just really, not merely because it's always fun to see my, uh, my old stomping grounds as a, a literal hell. Um, yeah. And the figurative hell in the girl walks home alone at night. Um, um, yeah. Wait, did you see that? I didn't. Okay. I haven't seen that yet. Um, um, but that's, uh, uh, a girl walks home alone at night is specifically Taft. That's specifically Taft. Yeah. This is Kern County at large. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so just, so that's fun to see, but also, you know, Greg Turkington, right? Mm-hmm. His performance is marvelous. I think Ty Sheridan yeah. is, I feel like, as an actor, and I've and I've liked him in in a lot of his, you know, in Mud and mm-hmm. Joe. I think he's a very very good actor. Th- th- in this, we're seeing sides of him that we have not seen before, and we're seeing, and it, it becomes very clear that like, oh, the discomfort is not merely the Neil Hamburger act. Yeah. Like <laughs> the clown before him and his weird, his weird fake masturbation moment. Yeah, uh, where. And it's like, oh wow, he's really like getting into it. And then like afterwards, and it's shot in close up, so we don't see how the audience is reacting to it. Yeah, which I find he does point at people and you hear them laugh a little bit. Okay. So there is that. But then there, it's just stony silence as he fake finishes, and then like, and then like ah, uh, breathes a sigh of relief, and then looks out like, hey, what are all these people doing here? <laughs> it's it's a really uh, wonderful performance and i think uh john c Riley's really good too yeah and so is michael sarah we've we talked about so boy, is, oh boy. Uh, amy simitz yeah um, yeah just all just all these you know people do tremendous and, work um, with only a few minutes of screen time what's her name uh i think her name's lota verbeek the um uh the like color and sound therapist yes uh yeah and i, I like those good. it's just it's a 
you know, it's this very strange, almost experimental, surreal film. And I, I can't think of a, I can't think of a better movie about loneliness that really captures loneliness or like in the, often in the sense where he's in the middle of groups of people and he feels just as alone as when he's in the middle right. of the desert. Even when one of them is Dean Stockwell, <laughs> even when, one <laughs> boy, oh boy. Yeah. And that's a tough scene too. Yeah. Like that's, that's, it's a payoff that we've been wanting, but we don't want it like that. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is the film is not into giving us what we want. And one thing that I do love, Something I love. So we see multiple shows that Neil Hamburger does. Yeah. Best audience. What was it? The prison. The prison. Be, yeah. They love them. Yeah. And nobody else gets them, but they sure get them. Yeah. And I feel true. like that's, that's interesting in and yeah. of itself. So I really, really responded to it. Didn't quite crack my top 10, but it's close. Yeah. Uh, but again, I, um, even to people who are cinephiles, yeah. I would hesitate, like, be prepared for what it is a it is an aggressively called, discomforting film. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is, is trying harrowing. To you, yeah, it is trying say. to make you upset or uh, feel uncomfortable or unpleasant. Yes, um, there's a part I, I and I saw it in the theater too, which is like because <laughs> there were walkouts and there was a part that I laughed at and I was like, I hope people understand why I'm laughing at it because yeah. there's a part near the end where another comic, another guy tells a really disgusting and really not good, like joke, like joke, joke, a street joke. Um, and it's so disgusting and so terrible that it cracked me up. Like, and that's clearly what Rick Albertson is going for. Like, it's funny. This is not a funny joke. It's funny that he just said that. Yeah. Uh, it's like, um, and the context in which it is presented where it's said conversationally and then repeated on stage. And we've heard comedians talk about, uh, I remember Jimmy Pardo told a story where he was backstage at a comedy club and a guy comes up and kind of says this thing as though he, and it's clear, Oh, he's doing material to me. Uh What? As though it's just a funny observation. Is he trying to impress me? What is going on here? And it, there's a there's such an air of desperation to that as well. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. No, I think I'm done. Okay. Uh, oh, I was going to say it's like the scene. There's a very similar scene. I don't know if uh, this was a, a intentional homage, but in um, the Seinfeld reunion season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, mm-hmm. where uh, Super Dave, <laughs> what's his name? Uh, uh, Einstein, Bob Einstein. Right, but the the character's name is like. Funkhauser, I oh, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Where he tells Jerry Seinfeld a joke that is disgusting. And for the same reason, it's not a funny joke. It's funny that he just said that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, moving on. I'm glad that was something we really liked because I'm going to move on to something that was, um, I'm not going to say a disappointment because, um, my guard was up going in, but it's one of the more talked about movies of the fall season. And that's the revenant. Okay. Which I haven't seen yet. Um, well, I will say this. See, it was in the theater. That's the plan. It uh, is. I'm that, sure it's gorgeous. It's it's not just gorgeous. It is um, all enveloping. The music by Ryuichi Sakamoto is amazing. And uh, see, yeah, see it on a good high tech screen. That's going to have a great or a theater. that's going to have a great sound system because mm-hmm. um, it, it isn't. There's a, very much an experiential aspect to uh, this movie. I can't imagine watching a screener at home and feeling um, like I'd seen the movie uh, as much as I have sitting in the, in the third row. I found that as I get older, I like to sit closer. Really? When I was in like high school, I was a back of the theater guy and I feel like I've steadily moved forward. And now I like to sit as 
close as I can before it starts to get like too close. You know what I mean? Like before I had to start craning, I like to be in like the third or fourth row. I'm still very much back, not all the way back in the theater, but I'm not opposed to it either. I, I yeah. like, yeah. um, but this is one to watch from the third row. Like I did, uh, that said it's, um, well to, it, it's, uh, <laughs> It's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing mm-hmm. to be pretentious and uh, reference Macbeth about it. But um, it does feel like it doesn't have much reason to exist. And when it does touch on a reason to exist, it's like, oh, you needed to like. You need two and a half hours for that? Or or that like you feel this strong. Like it's. It is a really unforgiving not awe-inspiringly unforgiving but uh an unpleasant view of nature oh okay we're like it, it it's funny how it starts off very terrence malick the movie starts off very terrence malick with literally with like a flashback that's uh disconnected memories with a whispered voiceover mm-hmm. very much very terrence malick and then goes on to be like essentially the anti terrence malick okay. because um the movie seems to hate nature <laughs> It so it goes from Malik to Herzog. Yeah. Uh, but even Herzog has awe for and respect yeah. for nature. This is just like, stay the fuck out of nature. This, uh, it's all trying to kill you. Uh, so I might be on board with this hell. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's, it's one of those things that, um, it seems like it's really expertly made. It was, even if I didn't have, months and months of stories, uh, you know, articles telling me, so I would know this is a difficult movie to make. Um, but I, I'm going to quote myself from my review of the movie or paraphrase myself. Um, between Birdman and this, it seems like Inara two has convinced himself that achieving something difficult is reason enough to make a movie. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Which you can, you know, you can do worse than that. Like there, there's something kind of, exciting and exhilarating about watching a movie where someone was just like, can I do this? You know, and good for, because so many films are made with, yes, we can do it. So we will, um, you know, yeah, there's almost, uh, it's almost like space exploration. Well, (laughs) the movie I would compare it to, but not favorably, I think it pales in comparison, uh, is gravity. Gravity is a movie that is also very experiential and, to its detriment, uh, also kind of forgettable. I think like gravity is an yeah. experience, and then once it's over, you're like, "Oh, glad I glad I saw it." It's like a yeah. you know a long roller coaster or whatever. I'm gonna take um, a nap and forget it. Where, I, but but gravity ends with uh, I think uh, a fairly well earned uplift, or at least it has. There's a lot of hope to gravity. Yeah. Whereas. The Revenant is like, well, we're going to be an hour longer than gravity. And instead of hope, we're going to end with a big fuck you. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I just, once again, I DiCaprio have... comes out of an elevator, gets shot in the head. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, what's next for you? Oh boy. All right. Next for me, I should explain. I was working. I watched Kevin Smith's Tusk. Really? Because I was curious. I've been curious about it for a while. And now is this because you're gearing up? We're going to Sundance. Are you getting all geared up for yoga hosers? I haven't heard of it until now, but sure. That's it. The hell is that? It's a Kevin Smith film. I assume it's his new movie. I don't know what it's about. I know it has a good name, yoga hosers, but, um, that's fun. It's, uh, I think looking at my schedule for Sundance so far, I'm planning on being flexible at Sundance, mm-hmm. you know, to pick out like, Oh, okay. What's uh, what's buzzworthy. What am I, what should I see? But it's looking like I'm going to give yoga hosers a pass. 
<laughs> you mean like a free pass? Like you're going to see it and you're going to be like, hey, I'm feeling generous. Um, yeah, Tusk, uh, it's uh, what a fascinating film. It is, from a visual standpoint, it might, and this is not, this is not great praise for Kevin Smith. It's the most visually accomplished film he's made. Uh, you know, it's a horror film and it feels like a horror film. It's shot like the, his, he utilizes setting, he utilizes imagery, he use, utilizes shadow, uh, to create a mood and it is well done. Like he does a really great job with that. Um, Michael Parks, so marvelous in red state is maybe even more marvelous in this who is get, he is given genuine mad scientist type dialogue except the mad scientist dialogue is so much more ridiculous than most mad scientist dialogue because he's talking about uh, the beauty and purity of walruses. Um, But boy, does he sell it, you know? Uh, Tusk is not an Oscar-type movie, but that is an Oscar-level supporting actor performance. Michael Parks, who would have thought that... Well, I mean, I guess it makes sense that just... Tarantino, who's amazing with dialogue, and Kevin Smith, who is who can be pretty accomplished with dialogue, um, at the very least can be very flowery. And Michael Parks is apparently your go-to if you want really flowery dialogue delivered with tremendous mm-hmm. conviction. Justin Long is very committed in in just playing a total asshole. So it's it's a really effective horror film up until. Kevin Smith decides, oh, right, I like smoking weed. And I'm going to, and this all came from a funny conversation that I had on my podcast. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to make it funny. And the way in which he makes it funny is so, I mean, there's there's an uncredited performance in there that I'm sure you might know about at this point. I think I feel like I probably knew about it at some point and have forgotten okay. because I don't care. And I had forgotten. And then when I saw it and the performance isn't bad, I actually applaud uh, the commitment of it. Um, it's just the choice of Kevin Smith to include this character and then spend t- so much time with him. It, you know, it just destroys what he had very carefully crafted up until that point. And from then on, the film is just batshit crazy. And I understand why he feels like he needs to do that. Because again, this came from a goofy, Hey, wouldn't it be funny if conversation that he was having on his podcast? And it's like, that's fine. But to me, you were doing a really great job of, Hey, what if we did this and it worked? And then the last probably 25 to 30 minutes are so astonishingly unwatchable <laughs> that it feels honestly, if I were Michael parks, I would be angry because you want to be like, do you, Hey, fuck stick. Do you realize that I was giving you gold for like 45 minutes of this movie? And now you're going to do this to me. I was, you, I was get, turning in a performance and you were making a film that was worth watching. And then you turn it into this shit and it's just, it is such, it is so ridiculous. All right. I'm going to bump it down my, uh, Netflix queue, <laughs> but um, it's, you know what? Watch it for 45 minutes. Okay. Cause that, my, that Michael Parks performance. And again, a lot of the, a lot of the camera work and stuff and the general tone solid, really, really good. Um, all right. Next up for me is a movie I've been looking forward to uh, and lived up to my hopes for the most part. Uh, it's called Queen of Earth. It's directed oh, okay. by Alex Ross Perry, who j- 
was it last year or two years ago? Last year. Made Listen Up Philip, yeah, which, which is wonderful. terrific. I love it. Uh, and definitely showing some range here because Queen of Earth is also very good, but is not in very many ways like Listen Up Philip, except okay. both movies have a lot of talking in them. Yeah. Um, and I have no problem with that because uh, he's got two great, uh, two great leads um, in um, Elizabeth Moss and Catherine Waterston. Um, and then uh, Patrick Fugit is the third uh, mm-hmm. third wheel, I guess. Um, I feel like he hasn't been in a lot of stuff lately. Sometimes He's I feel been like, Gone Girl. Um, that's right, yeah. But sometimes I feel like when I'm like, oh, that, that actor hasn't been around in a while, while, it turns out, oh, no, they've been headlining this TV show you just haven't been watching. Oh, like, yeah. I always forget about that. So maybe Patrick Fugit's been on TV somewhere. Um, maybe he was in the United States of Terra. Is that a show? <laughs> that sounds right. Okay, I think that was a show. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm supposed to be the TV guy. Uh, I don't really watch TV anymore. There's a lot of TV out. though. Yeah. Peak TV. Um, see, you're not even enough of a TV guy to know I don't about know what that. that means. Uh, yeah. At the, uh, John Landgraf from FX, uh, whined about how there's too much TV. Now we've reached peak TV and good shows can't get an audience anymore. And it's like, boo hoo. Like that is, that is not a problem. <laughs> it's a good problem to have. You know what that is? Yeah. It's a first world problem. It's a first world problem. Yeah. So I'm not going to cry for John Landgraf cause he couldn't get enough eyeballs on the bastard execution or whatever. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, that's not what I meant to go. Uh, but, uh, queen of earth is, um, uh, I'm not going to be the first or the last to compare it to, uh, repulsion, the, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, Roman Polanski film, uh, except it has, it's still one woman going kind of crazy in a house, but she's not alone. Um, the way that Catherine Deneuve is in repulsion and she's there with her friend. The premise is that, um, Elizabeth Moss has just, um, come out of a relationship. She's had her heart broken. And shortly before that, her father committed suicide. Okay. So she's in a bad place. She has a friend who's, um, played by Catherine Watterson, who uh, is from a wealthy family who they own a, cabin uh upstate new york uh, by the, uh, a lake and she goes um she's invited up by Catherine waterson to say hey you know take some time off take a load off come spend a week or so up here at the cabin with me uh while you're going through a hard time um but then Catherine waterson is also in this sort of flirtatious maybe relationship with the rich kid at the next cabin played by patrick fugit mm-hmm. um and Elizabeth Moss being in the state she is in is not enjoying their dynamic. Mm-hmm. But then you also get flashbacks to a previous trip to the cabin when Elizabeth Moss, uh, being at the beginning of the relationship that has just ended, brought her then new boyfriend along to the cabin without telling her friend that he was coming and uh, it wasn't fun for her friend. And so you get this sort of like parallel of, uh, you know, how much things have changed in the year or two in between the two, uh, cabin trips. Um, but it's mostly at the present day time and it's mostly about Elizabeth Moss, uh, about her character really losing her mind. Um, uh, to the point where as the movie goes on, you increasingly can't trust that what you're seeing is hmm. actually happening. That's fun. Um, well, it's not, not, not yeah, fun, it's not like, fun, you know, uh, but it's a really good movie. And, yeah. uh, it's, it's really a movie that, uh, I mean, Alex Ross Perry has a great, uh, mastery of tone and and editing but he is mostly and i think this is true of listen up philip uh as well he's great with casting and with actors yeah. and knows when like to just stand back and let the the words and the actor speaking them do do the work yeah um and so it's 
it's in many ways it's it's an actor's movie but it's also some uh very accomplished uh filmmaking what's okay. next for you next for me is lenny abramson's room oh i saw that yeah which i loved quite a bit me um, too i would say yeah really well I, what else has lenny abramson, abramson done we did frank which was he also did frank really, which really i great. which i didn't see uh, i think you'd like it a lot uh yeah, um, I mean, I feel it's weird. Room is one of those movies that just I, I really responded to, but I'm not even sure really what to talk about, except that it's just so wonderfully done and I think really captures... Because the film, you wouldn't necessarily know it to hear people talk about it. The film does have two leads, and in fact, one could say that the kid is more the lead than the mom. Um and it's from his perspective. And yeah. so when, whether it be his narration or when he, when he's in certain situations, I won't even go into them when he's in certain situations that are dangerous and he ha- and he is very limited in what he can do and even what he can see. And the way the filmmaker captures his perspective is very effective. Um, and so, and that kid, Jacob, Jacob, uh, Tremblay, yeah. uh, is, uh, astounding. Uh, I really love him because he does not imbue the kid with more than what a kid should have. That's the thing that bothers me uh, so much with kid characters is they overwrite them and they make them probably about five years older than they should be. Right. He's just right. But also, but that doesn't mean that his, that doesn't mean that his emotions are, are simpler. Um, you know he's ha- he's in a very strange situation that has required more of him than most kids his age and it has aged him em- emotionally to a certain extent but he still talks and acts like a 6 uh, a 6 year old and right. it's just so his performance is amazing i enjoy so many of the supporting performances including and boy i wish i had his name in front of me he's from i know him from one movie and it's the sweet hereafter uh, he plays Joan Allen's new husband, right, the, even though they've been together for a long time. Stepdad to uh, his name's like McManus something something McManus is that something, something like that McCamus McCamus that sounds right to me. I, I it's a mix something yeah, and it ends in a U.S. I think yeah. Um, Let's say Tom McCamus. Sure, that sounds right. Uh, <laughs> but you remember him from Sweet Hereafter, right? Uh, I haven't seen the Sweet Hereafter in forever, so okay. I don't. Well, he's uh, Sarah Polly's father. Oh, okay. Okay, so when I see him on screen, my first thought is, don't trust him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's marvelous. Yeah. Like, there's a, a wonderful and it's scene. also, ironically, maybe the most trustworthy character in the movie. Oh, no question. Yeah. Um, and, and so just, he has... Again, like the just the film has to hit just the right emotional tone, and you know there's a scene where, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm almost getting choked up now. Where Joan Allen is is giving her grandson, and this is almost a spoiler. It's such a big deal giving her grandson a haircut. Yeah, and and he just throws out "I love you" in just a very matter of fact way. Yeah, and it feels totally earned, and her perf- and her reaction is completely earned, and yeah. it's just there's so much great about this, and I haven't even mentioned Brie Larson, who just has to. Her character is all about holding things in, and not saying what she wants to say, not not feeling what she wants to feel, not merely because of I need to protect my son from what's really going on, but also I need to make sure I don't get in trouble with my captor. Uh, right. And so, yeah, it's just a really, really effective film. Um, and I, I was worried that at times it was going to be cloying or 
you know, anything like that. And, and it really was not, I, I really, really responded well to it. Well, as much as I'd like to say more about room, I feel like we're going to be talking about the next one for a little bit. Okay. Uh, you and I haven't talked about it yet, yet off, off mic at all, but I'm pretty sure you've seen it because mm. I think I see the program over there on the shelf. Uh, yes, you do. That's Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. That's correct. Um, and I have, I have kind of refrained from talking about this movie on Twitter because I've wanted like puzzle out how I feel about it, but I am mostly very disappointed in the movie. Interesting. I, uh, part of it might've been that I was really looking forward to the movie because Mm -hmm. I think the last two movies that Quentin Tarantino made are his best two. Um, and those movies, I feel like the hateful eight has all the same, uh, superficial ingredients of, Mm -hmm. Uh, or style of ingredients uh, of Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, but it doesn't have the base to hold it up. Uh, I feel like, I mean, Quentin Tarantino has often um, wallowed and been a little sadistic. Um, I've talked about my, uh, how uncomfortable I get sometimes watching Reservoir Dogs. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I don't hold that movie up to the same, uh, in the same way that a lot of, I think, Tarantino fans and cineasts do because I um, don't entirely agree with his motivations for including certain scenes or bits of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And this felt like it kind of came back to that where uh, it's like, I understand you're good with dialogue and you're good with tension and, and stuff, but I don't feel like there is uh, anything in here sturdy enough to hang your sadism on because it does. It really is an ugly movie. Um, I don't mean that it's ugly to look at. It's beautifully shot by yeah. Richardson. But I mean the things that happen on screen um, are upsetting. Whereas I, I know, and you, you know, this could just be a different interpretation because I've I've read mm-hmm. a lot of reviews since I've seen it because I want especially reviews that are positive. I actually have not read any reviews yet oh i've because i want to i want to believe there's more to the movie and i've seen there's definitely some stuff in there but i know you had a problem with um uh i remember going back to inglorious bastards um the the german uh soldier who gets captured and then questioned and gets his skull beaten in yeah um and I've I argued there's a reason that that is in there the way it is, mm-hmm. um, but I think I feel the same way about most of the hateful eight, especially the post intermission part um, that you felt about <laughs> about that that scene that uh, that I don't think I don't think there's a reason I feel, I feel like there's something in the movie about um, Tim Roth's character. Uh, well, I mean, everyone isn't, everyone in the movie sort of becomes different from who they say they are. Mm-hmm. But Tim Ross character in the first half is like my favorite part of the movie. He's delightful. And his speech about the difference between, um, justice, justice and frontier and justice. Frontier justice yeah. And when he says the danger with, uh, or, or, um, frontier justice, do, frontier justice doesn't include dispassion. And mm-hmm. when a, I think that the line is, um, justice without dispassion is always in danger of not being justice. Yeah. And I feel like that's the point he's trying to make. And he's trying, I think, um, in ways that other people have responded to more than I have to connect that, um, that feeling and that, uh, that idea of a, 
uh, approaching issues with be they social issues or justice issues or legal issues with your own baggage and your own prejudices. Uh, he's trying to connect that to the present day. And I think there's a good movie to be made out of that, those connections, mm-hmm. but I don't think he makes them uh, effectively because I keep think he keeps stepping on his own um, toes with um, just, he's got too heavy a hand with the, um, with the ugliness. Interesting. Uh, this is, I'm saying this, I'm giving this a bad review for a Quentin Tarantino movie. mm -hmm. Like I still think it's really well made. I don't know that I would, that I'm eager to watch it again because again, I found it to be so uh, ugly and unpleasant and sadistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, I do think it's well made. I have more to say, but I want you to uh, chime in. Uh, there's probably only two things in the film that I find unnecessarily sadistic. And even then I'm questioning myself. One is the pre-intermission moment, not moment, the extended sequence and the story that is being told. But I might, uh, that's, it's an incredibly discomforting scene, but that, see that I was still on uh, more or less on board. I, uh, I still felt, I mean, at that point, cause the, the pre-intermission is, it's not down the middle. The pre-intermission is about a half hour longer, I think than mm-hmm. the post-intermission. Um, and I do feel like there's some filler in there. I feel like maybe sure. he's gotten to the point where um, he gets to make whatever he wants. And I support that as someone who supports uh, art. But I do think that um, like there's a scene with Kurt Russell, Jennifer Jason Lee, Samuel Jackson, and Walton Goggins in a stagecoach mm-hmm. that I swear is just it's got to be like 25 minutes. It of feels talking. surprisingly long. Yes. And I don't think it needs to be that long. Yeah. But um other than that, I was still on board. And so that speech you're talking about, um, and the, I'm, I'm not against that. And the, the, the pictures you're seeing as, uh-huh. uh, as Samuel Jackson's character. Yeah, says, I'm not necessarily against that. It's, it's pretty tough. It just, it's hard to know. Not unlike for the same reason that I had an issue with, um, that scene in, uh, Inglorious Bastards, which I have gone on by the way to say is, uh, I think is Tarantino's best film. Um, but, Do I, do I do the side note now that has nothing to do specifically with hateful eight and has more to do with Tarantino? Okay. Yeah. Do the side note now. Okay. I'll get back to hateful eight, eight, obviously. Cause I don't know what you're going to say. So okay. don't forget what you're going to say. Um, do you find, I was talking, I was talking, I've talked with a few people about this. Do you find in yourself, but also in other people specifically our age and probably about five or six years older and maybe two or three years younger. So in this little 10 year span, if you were, a certain age, do you find an instinctive bristling at the idea that anything other than Pulp Fiction is his best film? Uh, no, because I have, I f- like, even though I say Glorious Bastards, I feel so, I feel wrong <laughs> saying it like, like I'm, like I'm being contrarian to myself. I, I don't know, know I what it is. Actually do. Now that you mention it, I do remember having that, um, reaction early on that, like my initial reaction to the glorious bastards was that it's not, not as good as Pulp Fiction. And I think it was just because Pulp Fiction already occupied this place. But I think right. it's been what, uh, six years, six and a half years since Inglorious bastards came yeah. out. I've gotten over that. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, because I, I think Django is his best film, then Inglorious Bastards. Well, and just and what's interesting is that like in the people that just when I would talk about Inglorious Bastards and Django, so this has been happening for the last few years when he's made two movies that are very 
provide very good arguments that he's a better filmmaker than he was mm-hmm. at the time of Pulp, of Pulp Fiction, and he's doing his best work. Um, but even then, when I when you say like, well, what's your you know what's your favorite Pulp Fiction? What's your favorite uh, Quentin Tarantino film? And they would react as if you say, well, what's your favorite Simpsons character? It's like, well, Homer, obviously, but, (laughs) and then moving on to the, you know, uh, and people would say it like Pulp Fiction. It is not unlike Fargo for the Coen brothers. People might say that No Country for Old Men, and frankly, a lot of people talk about True Grit as being their best film ever, but I myself... I people don't talk about True Grit at all anymore. Really? I still know a lot of people that love it, that uh, like really oh, love I, it. I think it's fantastic. Um, it is uh, not quite... like Going back to what I was saying about The Big Short, I don't think True Grit gets thought of as being as funny as it is, uh, but oh, it yes. is a very funny yeah. movie. Um, and so... But in the same way, I just feel like that there are people who uh, who will never. It doesn't matter how good the Coen Brothers ever get; they could right. make their Hail Caesar could be their best movie of all time. Like, in of course, it's all very subjective. But I feel like people will never say anything other than Fargo, and that includes me. I don't know what I would say. Oh, that's well, that's another one for me because it's never been Fargo for me. It's yeah. always been Barton Fink. Barton Fink, right? Um, um, but uh, I feel like any movie that's the one that puts the person on the map yeah. is the one that people will say, that's the one. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But I don't even know if Fargo would be number two for me. But th- this is getting into just like personal right. reference and the connections and nostalgia because I would put Raising Arizona number two maybe hmm. behind Barton Fink. But um, I, I love Raising Arizona, I think, more than... I think a lot of people love it. But, but I yeah. think it is... Uh, along with what had American summer, one of the great comedies of the 20th sure, century. Absolutely. Um, Those are the top two. No question about it. <laughs> well, no, obviously um, airplane and Monty Python, the Holy Grail are the top two comedies of all time. <laughs> um, back to hateful eight. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. So here's, here's, I, I really loved the movie and I didn't expect to, Oh, I mentioned, so there are two things that I thought were sadistic that part, which seemed, Again, I'm trying to figure out the tone in which the film is trying to strike. And based but on again, audience reaction, my audience, Stony Silence. And by the way, in my audience, Zack Snyder. Okay. Which I kind of think is great. Yeah, he probably yeah. could have arranged his own screening. Yeah, and maybe he did and just wanted to see it again. Maybe. maybe he'd already seen it. Maybe. Um, but uh, this is, but what I'm talking about is I find, and again, maybe this is just my own personal politics and belief. I find that, um, what the speech you're talking about, which mm-hmm. I'll go ahead and say is Samuel Jackson and the person he's directing it to yeah. are on such opposing ends. It's sort of like, um, I'll compare it to, uh, uh another movie from, uh, earlier, much earlier this year. Uh, you and I talked about the, the, the church massacre in sure. um, Kingsman where sure. th- these people are introduced as awful. Mm-hmm. They're hateful. They're ignorant. Mm-hmm. They're damaging to the fabric of society. Right. And so the character that Samuel Jackson is talking to in the speech is uh, an awful racist. This mm-hmm. has been established. He has said terrible, terrible things. Yeah. And, and, done, so, and done terrible things. Um, and done terrible things. Um, yeah. Off camera. Uh, pre- previous to the yeah. movie. Um, and so Samuel Jackson saying these things to him, there's a part of me that is like, yeah, like humiliate this guy like you know uh get under this guy's skin but it goes so far that it's like this is starting to make me uncomfortable and yeah. then it 
expands to being about more than just these two characters, but being about essentially black and white relations and a lot of other things in general. And so as, as much as that scene like the church massacre and Kingsman does, um, get under my skin a little bit, I, mm-hmm. I'll disagree with you that I think that I think it's earned. I think it's, um, I think, worth it. the, I think it's comfort is worth it. I think it's helpful that we cut back to the character he is talking to with a genuinely horrified expression on his mm-hmm. face. And regardless of how bad it has been established, he is, uh, in that moment it's like, Oh geez, this is pretty rough. It's right. just like, I don't know if Samuel Jackson's story is true or not, but yeah. After a certain point, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But, and it's hard to know. It's just like that level of, of revelry, how much of it is Samuel Jackson's character and how much of it is Tarantino himself and how much is it supposed to be us? I don't know. So that's the thing. Even then, I don't think I would remove that section from the film because it's so complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one is when Samuel Jackson, he kills somebody, and then once the person's already dead, he destroys the person's head with two bill- uh, two bullets. And I'm with you on that. Yeah. That I don't like. Yeah, um, because that that even though he then goes on to regret it, but for bad reasons. Um, well, I don't think he does go on to regret it. He thinks it's funny. He regrets think, it when he uh, discovers that someone oh, else. Shoot, it would have been helpful to be able to prove that this person but at is that who point, he is. And we're getting into spoilers. Yeah. At, at that point, I don't think he's gonna. I think he still thinks it's funny. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. He quote but, unquote regrets it. Um. But that, yeah, the, the, the part you're talking about, the second part you're talking about is in the, is in the second half, in the post-intermission mm-hmm. half. And that's where I started to turn on the movie because it became essentially a, um, I, I feel like he took some pages from his, Tarantino took some pages from his, his buddy Eli Ross book and mm-hmm. just made a grisly horror movie that's more about yeah. how grisly it is than about horror. It's just, there's eight characters, although there's not, there's, it's called the hateful eight, but James Parks is in it just as much as most of the eight. Like, yeah. There really is a ninth guy. Um, I guess, uh, anyway, and but James he has Parks no skin in the game. You know? uh, I guess you're right. Um, but there's just those characters. And then there's a flashback scene in which there's a ton of characters. And as soon as you see a yeah. ton of other characters, I'm like, these people are all just here to get killed. Yeah. And that upset me. Like, it seemed like he's, this doesn't serve the story to have this many extraneous people getting, you know, uh, their heads blown apart or shot at point blank range or all this stuff. Like I feel bad for those people though. I uh, don't feel like it's reveling and I think it's a a viewed as a a bad fact that like, I guess what I'm saying is we're expecting that flashback. There's two deaths we're expecting. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because of there's the, proprietors of the place sure that's who we're expecting and so when suddenly a coach with a half dozen people yeah pull up and none of that you get in and there's two or three more people than we expected i think two more people than we that beyond the proprietors um yeah i feel bad for those people but i also feel like um i'm being manipulated by there's just more people so there's more grisly deaths and uh it uh, yeah it, it, it bothered me it's like when there's a lot more people in the mall in the uh, Dawn of the Dead remake. Yeah, um, that's that, that's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. So, okay, here's so I want to get to kind of the core of what I like about the movie. I, there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to like, obviously. Um, performances, marvelous. There might be some of the, in my opinion, some of the best work for Kurt Russell's career. Um, specifically, when he finds out something. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a really nice moment. Yeah. Uh, on his part, but anyway. Um, Gorgeously shot the whole deal. Uh, at its core, 
This to me is like the big short. He's not made a film this ugly before. Uh-huh. He hasn't been this angry before. I feel like his, the ugliness, the fury. I mean, you're talking about race relations. Well, this movie comes about at a time when race relations aren't necessarily great. And yeah. he is a guy who is often smack in the middle of it, often accused of being pretty uh, flippant with certain words. Uh, but the, he doesn't, he doesn't back down from that. He well, has not he been sure cowed by those criticisms. <laughs> not at all. If anything, it's just, it's making him stronger. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like he's a guy who, who took a look at the country and it's worth noting, like the, like the civil war looms very large over this film. This could have mm-hmm. ta- happened before civil war. It could happen, mu- you know, much, lo- uh, much longer or much longer after much longer after. I yeah. don't like the way that sounded, but well, I don't think, I don't think we ever find out what year it is. Yeah. But, but it, it seems is. like it's probably within five to That's, five yeah. to 10 years, yeah. I would say. Um, and so, and of course, what is the civil war? It's a country ripping itself apart. And that is what these people are doing. Um, you have, I mean, just, I wasn't expecting there to be this much, you know, the first, I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler. The first death has nothing to do with the story. Strictly speaking, it is two characters who aren't again, supposed to be there you know i'm trying to think about who you're talking about the first murder uh or the first violent exchange in the film when you think of the the plot that really kicks in in the second half Uh and you and that's when you realize okay there's all these plans that were made there's these people anticipated to be there and then when you realize the people that weren't anticipated in being there they're the people that the first, like the verse, first bit of violence happens between them. And so, and I feel like that's worth noting. Right. Um, and so I feel like this is a film that like it, where Tarantino who between, I think, I think Django and this, I think Django is a better film, uh, undoubtedly, but there you had him like really kind of being fascinated by certain, by race relations. And you had somebody like, uh, like, um, Calvin Candy, who we view as a villain, certainly, but kind of a sympathetic character in his own way, or almost a pitiful character at times. Um, and that his relationship with Samuel Jackson in that is really complex. Maybe one of the most complex things Tarantino has ever done. Hateful. And sin- so what has happened in the last three years? Uh, horrible, terrible, terrible things. Um, and I think Tarantino looked at that and it's like, okay, I'm not interested in, I'm not interested in fucking complexity anymore. Uh I'm furious. And I, and I look at the world and it's ugly, whether it be racial or class or anything else, or just pure selfishness. And this idea and, and the one bit of hope, the one bit of like really people like aspiring to things turns out to not be true. And I feel like that is what is particularly fascinating about the film is I think he's way more personally invested in this film than I ever thought he was going to be. I thought this was going to be pure pulp and that was it. But I thought, I think there's a lot more there than I expected. And maybe I was expecting more because I found there to be more in Django and in glorious bastards. Yeah. So, um, 
but should... let's put the, 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 these, uh, this idea about um, rage and um, uh, or not, you know, people being indignant, filmmakers being indignant about uh, things going on in the country and not being uh, complex or subtle about it. Let's put a pin in that. Okay. Because we're going to come back to that later okay. when we talk about a film made by maybe Quentin Tarantino's biggest critic. Um, oh, hang on now. Oh, um, got it, got it, got it. I, I do want to say a couple, uh, just a couple of performances I want to single out. Um, uh, Walton Goggins had such a small part in Django Unchained. I didn't mm. expect him to have such a big part in Hateful Eight, and yeah. he more than lives up to it. And I also want to give a tip of the cap to Damien Bashir. He's great. For being hilarious. For being, like, d- what I think is so funny is Damien Bashir, he is a Mexican man. Mm-hmm. And yet he is clearly playing <laughs> the accent. He is putting on such <laughs> oh, a no thick question. accent that everything he says is yeah. funny because he's saying it with such a thick accent. He has a huge beard. <laughs> he has very few lines. He's mostly unintelligible. And yet somehow, and he's pretty stone-faced throughout. And yet yeah. he's the funniest guy in the film. Yeah. Yeah. As a, like He's the exact opposite of Tim Roth. And yet they both are, in my opinion, like equally expressive. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, what's next for you? Uh, next for me is, I don't even know if I would count this as a movie or maybe in, in TV. When are we going to get to the ones that I've already seen or that we've already talked about? Uh, we'll get there. Okay, good. Uh, I watched a very Murray Christmas. Oh, okay. Um, on, I watched it on Christmas day. The new direct- film from Sofia Coppola. That's correct. Um, it's just an hour long and it's just a Christmas special with a number of people, obviously Bill Murray. Um, it was nice to see David Johansson in there. Wasn't expecting that. Oh, I like that. Uh, and then a number of fun cameos and such. Uh, Miley? Yeah. Miley's in it. Uh, Michael Sarah's in it. Chris Rock is in it. Um, some people as themselves, some not. Okay. And you get a lot of people singing and you get, and it's this weird meta commentary on these things, but uh, on, on these types of Christmas specials, but ultimately uh, putting that behind to just embrace the kind of sappy nature of Christmas yeah. specials. Um, and it took about 10 to 15 minutes to get into and understand, try to figure out like, okay, well now I just feel awkward and uncomfortable because I don't, I don't think you guys want to be here. Uh, and then once it settles in, so did I. And by the end, I find myself very touched, uh, by the film and, you know, um, we were watching it on Christmas and it ended pretty much right or like at 1150, 1155. Uh, we weren't planning on that happening. It just happened. And so the way the film ends fit really well with the last few minutes of Christmas day. And, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot. That's nice to hear this next movie. Okay. is terrific. Do you ever see movie? Now you and I, we are semi-professional film critics. Mm-hmm. We often see movies knowing that we'll have to write about them. Sure. Do you ever see a movie and you're like, I loved that, but I'm glad I don't have to write about it because I don't know how I would sure. explain how much I love that. Yeah. This is a documentary. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, it aired on Showtime earlier this year. Um, and it, it's called Listen to Me, Marlon. It's a oh, documentary yeah, yeah. about Marlon Brando. And it is narrated by him because it's he was a guy who recorded himself talking about his life a lot. Oh, great. Um, and also did things like had his face digitized like, so into a computer program so they can actually show and they do occasionally cut to a TV, like an, an old, not a flat screen, but like an older TV screen showing a digital version of late Marlon Brando's face saying the things that he said. Um, okay. So it is a documentary about Marlon Brando's life. 
but it is not at all what you're thinking of. Okay. It is not a straightforward biographical documentary. It's more a portrait of the inside of his mind and what it uh, might have been like to be Marlon Brando. Hmm. Um, with the family that he had, um, the father that he had, the things that happened to him and his family over time, um, the way that he, uh, you know, you don't get a lot of like behind the scenes on the Godfather. There is some stuff about making the Godfather, but it's more about the way that making the Godfather affected his life or the way that, uh, making last tango in Paris affected his life, um, and his career and, uh, whether or not he could separate his life and his personality from his career. Um, it's, it really does feel like you've stepped into this, uh, like you're like you've stepped into his mind, I guess. I mean, that feels corny to say, but, uh, it's all enveloping. And I watched it. I watched it all in one sitting without realizing I was getting near the end of it. Cause mm. it's such a, it's such an entrancing movie mm. in the way it's made. Um, I think, uh, that it's, again, it is a documentary, but I almost, hesitate to describe it as such because the word documentary has connotations i think of being um i I think people think of documentaries as mostly being informative and sometimes dry or at least straightforward you know that it's that there's something there's an educational aspect um this is uh to use another corny overused term it's like a it's a tone poem uh Mm -hmm. of a of a documentary um it it doesn't have a straightforward narrative or anything it's just uh the here's what it might have felt like not just the kind of thoughts he had but what a, it, it puts you in the place of what it might have felt like to be marlon brando mm-hmm. it's terrific it is a terrific movie i should have brought the screener for you to watch because i want to lend it i i, I desperately want to see it now that uh, sounds marvelous it, it's it's fantastic uh what's next for you next for me is joy Okay, so next for me um, is, now I will say, I might have liked this movie more, not, I liked this movie, I might have loved it if I hadn't just watched Listen to Me, Marlon, uh, and this movie is called Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck. Okay. Also a terrific documentary. It's a little bit more in, uh, a little bit closer to the conventional documentary that I talked about, um, but at the same time, it it isn't, because it includes things like uh, animation, um, like animation made for the film. And also, you know, Kurt Cobain from a young age was a doodler. And mm-hmm. so they, uh, animate his drawings. Oh, um, that's fun. and, uh, I think, uh, it, yeah, it, it's, it's very good. And it, again, kind of like listen to me, Marlon, but not to the same extent, um, it is more about how it feels because I've talked before about how I often don't like documentaries about musicians who I'm already a fan of because okay. often it feels like the point is to convince you to be a fan of them. Yeah. Like, I, like or the big, convince you to hate them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. But like the big star documentary or, um, even the, to some extent, the Kathleen Hanna documentary, the punk singer, um, I'm, I'm into big star. I'm into Kathleen Hanna and bikini kill. Um, but I didn't need to sit down for an hour and a half and have someone try to convince me that they're great. Cause I already yeah. knew that going in. Um, I think montage of heck takes it as uh, maybe because Kirk Cobain is obviously a bigger figure in pop culture than big star or, um, Kathleen Hanna, uh, are, um, uh, it 
takes for granted that you're already a fan. Mm -hmm. And um, it manages to, uh, the the big coup here is that it was made with the full participation of uh, Courtney Love and um, Chris Novoselic. Okay. Um, although not Dave Grohl. Um, I'm not sure why, but Dave Grohl does not appear in it at all. But what that means is they have full access to the music. Right. So the, there is there is Nirvana music constantly throughout the movie. I, and was, it's not, I was going to ask, given how many documentaries there have been about Kurt Cobain, and there have been a, 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 quite a few at this there's, point. Off the top of my head, there's Kurt and Courtney, they're soaked in bleach, yeah. and there's About a Boy. Right. Yes, and then I f- is it called about a boy? About a son? About a son? Yes, yes. About um, a boy is a different movie, not a documentary. And I actually I know the the director of About a Son. Um, the uh, well, I worked with him for a while. Okay. So, um, but no, the question I was going to say is, whenever you have somebody that has had multiple documentaries made about him or her. Um, and somebody decides I want to make another one, like, does it justify its own existence? But I guess with the participation of those two key figures, it and, does. Yeah. And it also feels, uh, and, and the inclusion of the music, which none of the other ones were able right. to, to use. Um, and I think it it almost doesn't feel like this is another documentary about Kurt Cobain. It feels like, no disrespect to your friend who made it about his son, it feels mm-hmm. like this is the one. This is the definitive okay. one. This is the one that needed to be made. Um, it's the most uh, all-encompassing and... It you like I said, there's a lot of Nirvana music, but it doesn't just say, "Hey, we got we got the rights to this Nirvana music. Let's throw all this music in here." Right. It's all very motivated. In the you see in the movie, the movie never lets you forget that the reason, uh, as much as this guy, uh, it doesn't want to wallow in his, although it doesn't shy away from his um, drug problems or his uh, depression or like the hardships um, that he went through uh, as a kid, being child, you know, his parents split up and neither one really wanted him. And so he would go from living with his dad to living with his grandparents, living with his aunt and uncle living like mm-hmm. people would just get sick of him and kick him out. And it was like a hard childhood for him. Um, but it, it doesn't shy away from that, but it doesn't wallow. In. It never lets you forget that the reason you know who Kurt Cobain is, is because of this terrific music he made. Right. And also the reason he made this terrific music is because of the life he lived. And so it's all, um, wrapped up, uh, in one, um, it's another one that flew by. It's like two hours and 15 minutes. Wow. Um, but it, uh, it goes by really quick. Okay. Uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. Okay. Uh, next up for me. And by the way, I forgot to put this on my list. So, uh, so is one I just remembered. Okay. It's a rewatch. I think it's my only rewatch in here. Um, and that is Lawrence of Arabia, okay. which I saw the 70 millimeter prints at the Egyptian. And I have not seen it in the theater since, we saw it at the Music Box in Chicago. 2002. 2002. So it has been quite a while. Um, I've seen Lawrence many, many times at this point. Um, I don't really have much to add except it is, I mean, you know, theoretically every movie would benefit, it benefits from seeing it on the big screen. But an argument could be made that in the last 20 years, there are movies that are made knowing that it will be on smaller screens eventually. And that's kind of, so they're maybe made with that in mind. Uh, but this was made during a time when it was all about the big screen and Lawrence Arabia makes, takes full advantage of that. And you know, the deserts and the use of, and of course the sunsets and that sort of thing are, are beautiful. Uh, but the thing that has always, that as I've gotten older, the thing that has drawn me back to the film more and more is that there is this huge production and this sweeping music 
all centered around this guy who doesn't know who he is mm-hmm. and we don't know who he is either. You know, who are you is one of the mo- is one of the key lines of the film said, I believe by the director, I believe he gives oh. is the voice uh, of that. And I think like there's almost a certain perversity in that, that I think is kind of amazing because the, when you think about it, that's the thing is that T.E. Lawrence was this grandiose, guy who managed to do tremendous things and nobody knows why maybe least of all him yeah um and so that's something i've always thought was fascinating and i think this time around more so than any other time i've seen it i really came to appreciate the contribution both artistically and thematically of the omar omar sharif character Mm -hmm. um i love his performance and this time as because for a while, Lawrence is our entry point into this world, but once he is, once he is a part of the world and leading it, our focus shifts, and suddenly yeah, right. Omar Sharif is our entry point into Lawrence, and it's just a fascinating, it's a fascinating uh, switch there, and so, and then that scene with uh, Jose Ferrer just gets more and more disturbing the older I get for some reason. So, um, yeah, it's a wonderful film listeners. I'm sure you've already seen it. If you ever get the chance to see it on the big screen, take full advantage. Yep. All right. Uh, moving on to a movie that, uh, I know you saw, we talked about earlier. Uh, it's called dope. I said, yeah, I said dope. I liked it. I think I liked it more than you did. Yeah. Actually, I'm pretty sure. Sh- I'm sure I did like it more than you did, but I will say that speech at the end. Thumbs uh, down. It is. It so doesn't need to be in there and is so off-putting. Yeah. Um, and uh, and com- completely un- unnecessary for a movie that had already made some fantastic points um, yeah. uh, uh, about and some fantastic observations um, about kind of like Tangerine, about um, life in uh, places that don't get represented as much, that are marginalized, and that the people living them um, live normal lives internal lives but have to live uh abnormal lives because they're of their environment like i think it's um it's a movie that maybe unlike any movie i can really think of like if you look at menace to society right mm-hmm. that's a movie where um spoilers from menace to society but the college bound kid ends up getting shot at the end right. you know and so that Movies. There are we've seen movies that depict the tragedy of right. um, someone um, destined for more than what goes on in their neighborhood being taken down or roped in. Yeah. Right. Um, and dope isn't that because it isn't a tragedy and it isn't about someone being taken down or roped in. But it's also saying uh, it's also pointing out how you like it's easy for us who ha- for those of us who ha- didn't grow up in a place like this maybe to say like, well, why don't you just, you know, keep your head down, do your best and get out of there. Yeah. Um, the movie shows how it, that's easier said than done. Even kids who are in their interests. And they, I like the, at the beginning they talk about he and his friends are into quote unquote white shit. Yeah. Um, and I love that one of the examples is Donald Glover. <laughs> um, one of the examples of white shit. Um, that's very funny to me. Um, but even though these people are, this group of characters are very much relatable to those of us watching it from outside of, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, of, of this kind of neighborhood. They get caught up in this, uh, in, you know, drug running and stuff like that. Um, I think that's a metaphor for how, uh, it's, 
it's impossible to just to to separate yourself from your neighborhood. Well, and so I think it made all those points before it had before it went and gave this stupid direct address to camera thing <sighs> that I hated. But I still think that that didn't mar the movie enough. Uh, I would still give it a good grade and recommend it to people. I think it's it's a bit. Not merely uneven, but I feel like it's trying. It's trying to do so much, which is not which is not a mark against it, but um, that it it and it tries to do it all, and it winds up after a while. I'm just like, okay, this is like what are, what is the end end game here? You yeah. know, I think that's what that's what got to me. And admittedly, that last thing left such a taste in my mouth. Hey, I think maybe if you hadn't prepared me for it, okay. Uh, it would have, it would have struck me a little worse, Yeah, but I was able to say, well, this was a good movie. Uh, I really liked this movie and I really did like it up until then. Yeah. Um, It was funnier than I expected. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I expected it to be like quirky indie dramedy funny, but it's like at times it's funny, funny. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like the, one of my favorite characters is the, um, and I don't remember the actor, but the, the, um, when they go to the rich family's house, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the guy who's like the <laughs> music producer or whatever, yeah. he's just like clearly the spoiled like son. Uh, but he's trying to live the, uh, he's trying to, uh, mimic the life that they're regretfully being caught up in. Yeah. Uh, and you get, so there's some poignance to that, but he's also really funny. Yeah. All right. Um, let's move on. What's okay. next for you? Next for me is the hateful eight. Okay. Next for me, I can't. But I got more to say, David. No, go ahead. Uh, Next for me, uh, I can't remember if you saw this or not, but um, I saw and loved Paul Feig's Spy. Uh, Yeah, I saw that. Um, I I just got it for Christmas. Paul Feig keeps getting better. I think Mm -hmm. this is Spy is his first movie that I can one hundred percent say that's a good movie. Like I don't feel like I have to qualify. Yeah. Uh, You know, like um, Bridesmaids is a very funny movie that also has some great character work in a spotty way, kind of like joy. I kind of like how I felt about joy that it's, um, too ramshackle, um, to hang together as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, the heat is better than bridesmaids in that it has some momentum, but it's also so disinterested in being a police procedural, uh, in in favor of, um, being a comedy that sometimes it feels like a, a, a flimsy hook to hang the comedy on. Spy is, a very, very funny comedy and a very good spy action movie mm-hmm. at the same time. Uh, it is, it, it is Paul Feig's first unqualified triumph in my, uh, in my mind. Uh, I liked it from beginning to end. And even if it had just been two hours of, um, Melissa McCarthy and Jason Statham whisper yelling at each other, <laughs> uh, that would have been fine too. But then I wouldn't have gotten the greatness that is Rose Byrne or even Absolutely. Bobby Cannavale's small part. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Jude law too. Uh, I, I feel like, uh, and reviews and I've read have not, have been like least kind to Jude law, but he's, yeah. he's really good. He's good. And, and I he enjoy gives her the silly, uh, <laughs> the necklace. Yeah. But he, he, he like puts her voice. is like, it's a crazy cupcake. <laughs> <laughs> a very funny line reading. Yeah. Uh, and I like, uh, oh my gosh, I can't, I can't think of her name now. Um, Allison Janney. Oh, yeah. I enjoy her. Yeah. I think, and just, I know, I know you're upset, but could you refrain from using the term thunder cunt in your <laughs> official <laughs> favorite work? Uh, um, boy, uh, oh boy. And also, okay. I'm going to bring up something. This is, I'm not taking credit for this. This is uh Paul Goebel's observation. Okay. About Paul Feig's movies. In Bridesmaids, Chris O'Dowd, with his Irish accent, plays 
uh, an American police officer mm-hmm. or a police officer in America. The Heat, Damian Bashir, with his accent, plays uh, an FBI agent. Mm-hmm. In the in Spy, both Jason Statham and the tall woman from Call the Midwife, whose uh, name I forget, okay, play America like CIA mm-hmm. agents who are clearly British. Yeah, Paul Feig is clearly like at this point three in a row. It's intentional that he is casting foreign nationals as American law enforcement uh, representatives. And there's some reason he's doing it. Although I, Jude law has to do an American. Yes. Accent. Jude law does an American accent. Yeah. That's right. Um, I, I want to get, uh, I feel like we know people who know Paul Feig. Maybe we can reach out to our friend Wayne Fetterman. Sure. Uh, I want to get him on record. Let's get him on the show. But for one question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, maybe we can break our Skype rule just to have him Skype in and uh, answer this question. Then we'll say thanks for addressing that. Uh, see you later. I'm out. Um, All right. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful film. Love it so much. Very, very funny. What's up? What's next for you? Next for me is the original Delmer Davis or Dave's 310 to Yuma, which I got for Christmas. Oh, yeah. There's going to be a lot of Westerns because for some reason people wanted to get me Westerns for Christmas, which yeah. is fine. Um, yeah. Now, uh, I'd never seen it before. You've seen it, right? Um, yes. And it is, um, my observation is that unlike, as much as I like James Mangold's movie, this is much more of like a chamber piece by the end because the hotel room, they get to the hotel room like halfway through the movie in this version. There's a huge section that's just the hotel room. And I love that. Yeah. This one has more of a, one could say a languid pace, but I would say almost a, almost a meditative pace, um, where it just allows the characters to just kind of sit, not relax, but just sit and think about what's happening and what's going on. Um, And I think I probably enjoy the James Mangold version more partially because of some of the characterizations, Ben Foster, maybe most specifically um, and what they choose to do with some of those. Um, But I will say it's, it's a very, it's a very well done movie. I'm very happy that I, uh, that I own it. Um, Christmas and my birthday are weird times cause I will get movies that I have not seen, mm-hmm. uh, be- probably because of that Barnes and Noble flash sale. I get a lot of criterion that I haven't seen right. and then watch it and then feel like, eh, should I, it's like, eh, maybe I don't want to own this, but I do have it on criterion. What am I going to do? Give that away? Like some kind of sucker. Um, Van Heflin mm-hmm. is wonderful. I mean, Glenn, Glenn Ford, right. Is his name of the, of the other guy. It's um, yeah. he, he's a good actor. I like him a lot, but Van Heflin in the, what I will refer to as the Christian Bale role. I feel wrong saying that, but just <laughs> that character is supposed to convey weakness. He is supposed to convey like a guy who has no confidence in his ability as a man in the West. Um, Christian Bale does an okay, ver- an okay version of that. And I, I hate to com- talk about only in terms of, of the new one, but I saw that one first and quite some time ago, and I do really love it. Um, Christian Bale does okay with it, but he just, because he has conventional movie star looks and we've seen him as Batman, we know he is capable <laughs> uh, and he just looks to be in shape. Van Heflin has like these very expressive eyes. He just looks like a middle-aged man who's maybe a little doughy and just doesn't, it doesn't, he's just a farmer. That's all he does. And he's just scared. He's scared all the time. And, uh, and for him to be our main character in a Western, I think is a really 
a wonderful casting choice and and he really sort of makes the movie for me and makes it a a very different kind of western as far as how it feels um and of course it is based on the uh, james elroy yeah. story no no um, sorry uh elmore leonard. elmore leonard um yeah based on that story and he always had a way of kind of cutting through certain masculine ideas while still retaining them and i feel like this really does yeah. that so all right um don't get too comfortable because i'm not going to talk for very long about this next movie all right it's called black mass and it stinks and uh, there's no reason to talk about it anymore what, what what's next for you next for me is i'm uh, there are parts of it i like uh black mass i think joel edgerton is doing really great work i wish the movie had been more about him i think johnny depp does really good work it's, i think there's a lot of good work there but who gives a shit I, I think there's a couple of good things in the first 10 minutes of the movie that set me up for <laughs> a better movie and then it never was that again it's just dull and it just it doesn't seem to have any reason to exist there are i think four great scenes oh that's more than i'd give it yeah um right, what's next for you next for me is ridley scott's the martian oh i love this movie i don't oh man i don't i don't hate it i don't even dislike it i don't even like it i really like it but i don't love it it seems like it's a very well-made one could say expertly made. I forget that Ridley Scott is an intensely capable director. He can't like, be, we're, yeah. we're also, we're also busy talking about how he's not alien blade runner anymore, which is true Yeah, that I forget that he is a very effective journeyman filmmaker. Um, and he, you know, mission accomplished with every story aspect, uh, as far and, and creating the surface of Mars. And I believe he's on Mars. Uh, creating tension like through sound design, like the the sound of uh, wind blowing plastic, yeah. and every time you hear it, Matt Damon turning in a really, with a really great performance, just like being just scared all the time, even when he's you know even when he's making jokes. Um, but in the end, and you talked about this um, a couple weeks ago, um, the tone is so hopeful and come on guys, let's do it yeah. from the beginning that it kind of sapped some of the tension from me with the exception that, you know, you, you can't, I mean, when you have characters free floating in space, uh-huh. uh, it's always going to be tense. Yeah. Um, and I did feel like, okay, I'm pretty sure Matt Damon's not going to die. I cannot speak to two other crew members who are really being set up as the ones that will die. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, but they, I, th- I thought, I thought Bucky was going to eat it for sure. No question about it. No <laughs> question. It's like the minute, uh, you know, <laughs> the minute Kate Mara, the minute, uh, Sue storm gave him a, a big kiss on his helmet. I was like, Oh my gosh, you might as well give him your picture and send him off to war. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it's, um, but it's a really it's a really well done movie, and I like watching, um, I like watching procedure like people sitting and like really trying to work things out. Like, how are we going to make this happen? Uh, and I feel bad because I feel like better versions of this have been made. The aforementioned Gravity, I think, is a version of this that I think is better because you're just stuck with her in a very bad situation. And then Apollo 13, I think is the gold standard for watching people's, you know, I would definitely come compare it to Apollo, Apollo 13, but I feel like you got to get away from the space comparisons. I don't think it compares to, uh, I don't think gravity is the same sort of thing because gravity is 
um, as much as it was a big deal, mm-hmm. it's not a populist crowd pleaser. Right. And Martian, the Martian is a movie that proves that you can make a populist crowd pleaser mm-hmm. like Apollo 13 without pandering or being cynical or talking down to your audience or being condescending. You can make a genuinely good piece of cinema that yeah. is also 100% digestible to everyone and gives people hope. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll say it, this. I found it, it's like, uh, it's a wonderful life or something. Uh, yeah. It's, I don't mean to, I, I feel bad saying all this because it is a, very, very good crowd pleasing mainstream movie. And it's what you were, it's what you were talking about that you wrote an article about that. Like it's, I don't remember if you mentioned this in your article, it's something you and I have talked about elsewhere, but, um, that it's, while it is based on a book, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not a Marvel movie. It's not the type of science fiction movie that, that is popular, which is there's monsters and stuff like that. Um, it's just, people coming together. It's, it's a movie that's kind of for grownups. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's nothing. I mean, certainly children can see it. Kids can see it and enjoy it, but this is a film for adults where they don't have to turn something off. Yeah. But I feel like it's a, it's a film that could be for the whole family. Yeah. You know, and also I would compare it to, cause I'm just thinking about like memories of going to see movies with my whole family okay. as a, uh, as a younger person, uh, the Truman show. Sure. Movie, that is respectable and yeah. uh, adult and mature and well-made and also good for the whole family. And I yeah. kind of feel like that's what the Martian is. And I'll say, I saw it at the, at that $2 theater, um, on Bellingham. Yeah. In, it was yeah. a, it, the, the theater was not, it was their biggest theater. It wasn't necessarily full, but there were a lot of people in there. $2 theater movies been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And yet the theater cheered at the end. Like they, they applauded, you know, and just, that's not a thing I, I see very often except maybe opening night of a movie because right, yeah. you get a crowd of people that were so excited to see it that they're seeing it opening day. This is the people that, including me, saw it two and a half months after it was released and yeah. paid a whopping $2 for it. Oh, I'm sorry, $1.50. It was a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> and, and, they, and the film still pulled them in and made them feel and and touched them emotionally to such a degree that they couldn't help but applaud. And so that is very much to the film's credit. And yeah, it's, it's a very, very good movie. I didn't love it, but it's a very, very good movie. I just want to give some credit. And I did in my article that you mentioned before, uh, uh, a lot of credit actually to Drew Goddard, Drew Goddard, the screenwriter, Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of what got back, what got Ridley Scott back to being the competent journeyman he is, is that that screenplay anchored him a little bit like it because yeah. it's so talky for a, yeah. movie, for a movie that's about a guy spending two years or however alone on a planet yeah. it's a super talky movie um but in a kind of a light way it keeps him from being able to do the indulge in the big uh you know visual effects set pieces like uh yeah like, like he did in Ex- exodus gods and kings yeah he it, it's very much on a human scale at yeah. all times yeah uh all right well i lost my lost my thing let's see if i can from memory, see what I saw next. I'm not, I'm not going to remember what I saw next without my list in front of me. Um, oh, next was, I saw Star Wars The Force Awakens. What's next for you? All right. Uh, I took advantage of that movie sale recently, and so I watched Alan Dwan's Brewster's Millions. Okay. Uh, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, it's, you know, it's there's a, a screwball element to it, but it's also... A remar- it's from the 1940s, I believe. Uh, it's a remarkably stressful comedy. 
<laughs> you know the story of Brewster's Millions, no. right? Okay. Basically, uh, this guy, uh, Monty Brewster, in he, some long-lost uncle dies and leaves him $8 million. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. He gets $1 million now, and he has like a month to spend it all. If he does not spend it all, he will not get the additional $7 million. Um, and, and what, whatever's left over from that million gets taken back as well. The idea is his uncle's like, I spent my whole life spending and I feel like I've ruined that. I, that I wasted my life. I want you to get all this shit out of your system in one month so that when you do get this amount of money, you, you a appreciate it more and you'll use it more wisely. And so he's trying to spend it. Oh, and also there's a, you know, clause in the contract that he can't tell anybody why he's spending so frivolously. Okay. And so, you know, he starts, he starts a business and he's year is it in the forties. Okay. So million business. uh, Yeah. A a business that just spends money. That's basically all it does. This guy is spending a million dollars all wrong. Oh, I, I feel like I could do it pretty easily. I could do it real quick. But what happens is... I would buy a house, a car. I would buy out a few well, stores of clothing. You and I live in Los Angeles. Yeah, and then whatever I had left, I would go to Las Vegas, and I would put whatever I had left on one hand. And I'd be like, all right, I got this done in a weekend. But that's the thing. What if you win? Then you have to spend that on top of everything else. Is that in the, is that in the I clause? believe that's, I believe that's, uh, I don't remember if that's in there spe- in the contract specifically, but that does seem to be the situation that if he gets anything back that he is invested. So he's making bad investments and his friends are like, okay. what? Stop doing what you're doing. And so <laughs> everyone's just keep, everyone keeps giving him more money saying like, no, 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 you don't want to do that here. Here's this. And he's like, no, I don't want to do that. And so it's just, it's very stressful and it's very screwball and wacky and all that. And, uh, the guy whose name I have forgotten, he's, uh, uh Rochester from the Jack Benny show, okay. uh, black performer. Um, he, uh, He's, he's, he's like the guy's butler who then gets promoted to uh, a high executive in the, in the business. And at one point I just remember this line and I can't even put my finger on why it's just, it's just a good line. It's delivered well, where this guy keeps putting off Monty Brewster keeps putting off his and get his wedding. And, uh, and so well, he says, to spend some money. No, Oh, no question about it. Why doesn't he just get with the, pr- anyway? Uh, Oh, I, anyway it's a good movie it's not a movie anymore but uh seek it out anyway uh but what i will say is this line uh he keeps putting off his engagement uh his wedding and then this guy he says to his uh his butler he says it's not good luck he goes he goes uh it's bad luck to put off your wedding and then uh the butler says, not if you keep on putting it off. <laughs> <laughs> and just, and it's a, it's a really fun movie. I'm glad I watched it. All right. I'm, I'm only familiar. I was really only familiar with the 1980s version with uh, Richard Pryor, which I also enjoyed. Um, all right. Uh, next up for me. Um, and this is the last movie that I watched in 2015. Okay. Um, it's called the Pearl button. It's a documentary by uh, Patricio Guzman, who is a Chilean uh, documentarian. And I mean that both in that he is a documentary documentarian from Chile and that he makes documentaries almost exclusively about Chile. Okay. Um, the Pro Button is very good. It's a 
but a few years ago he made a remarkable documentary called Nostalgia for the Light. That, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Everyone should see Nostalgia for the Light. The Pearl Button seems like kind of a companion piece in a way. Nostalgia for the Light um is mostly concerned with the deserts of Chile, whereas the Pearl Button is concerned with the ocean. Okay. Um but it's not neither one of these are nature documentaries. Um Patricio Guzman clearly loves his country, loves Chile, but in it's the kind of love that I think uh, I have where he's like, it would be, it would, it will be wrong, morally wrong for us to forget the awful things that were done uh, mm-hmm. in this country. And he sees the reign of Augusto Pinochet as um, the defining event in uh, Chile's past. And he, his movies are, um, preoccupied with it. There's a, I mean, he made uh, the first movie of his that I saw back at the Gene Siskel film center, back when we lived in Chicago was, uh, I think it's called the Pinochet case. It's a, about uh, Augusto Pinochet. Um, but, um, now he's examining the terrain, I guess, between the desert and nostalgia for the light and the ocean and the pro button of Chile and how, um, those things, um, perhaps, uh, absorb the evils of Chile's past um, and um, hmm. potentially absorb their uh, memories. And uh, it's, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to really describe like Nostalgia for light is very, is comparatively very clear cut. It's about the desert and the desert in Chile is there are, because of where it is located on the earth and the fact that it's a wide open uh, desert and very flat and uh, has great vistas. There are, are um, uh, uh, observation towers that look at sky at the mm-hmm. you know, um, countries and um, private organizations own a lot of observation towers that are in the desert mm-hmm. in Chile that look up at the, and study this the the sky uh, and the the sp- and space and the universe. At the same time, the desert is where a lot of the bodies were buried by the Pinochet administration. People yeah. dis- disappeared, and there are people who are to this day who are relatives of. Um, people who were never heard from again um, in the 70s and 80s um, who are still going out to the desert every day and looking for remains. Hmm. And so you've got this comparison of people in the desert looking up and people looking down. Oh, yeah. Um, that's Nostalgia for the Light. It's fantastic. The Pearl Button is a little more sprawling in the way that it uh, deals with um, the ocean because that's also a place where bodies were, um, people were disappeared um, and they they were taken out on helicopters far away from the coastline, and their bodies were dropped. They were uh, they were killed and then tied to uh, lengths of um, like uh, what was one, like, like a beam, you know, from like a from a building. Okay, um, an I beam, something like that, and then dropped out of a helicopter. So there are uh, the you see people that go down in the um, into the the ocean. You see all these beams laying on the ocean floor, and you real like. The bodies have since decomposed or yeah, washed yeah. away or been eaten by um, fish or whatever. Great white like, sharks. Whatever it is. You realize that each one of these beams represents some person who was tortured yeah. and murdered. Um, but it also uh, deals with the uh, indigenous peoples of uh, that there are that there are very few left uh, of in, in Chile, but people who um, lived who lived off the ocean, you know, like fishing uh tribes and mm-hmm. and uh boating tribes in the way that um the chile's growth has um stymied their lifestyle uh and it sort of wraps all these things together it's really interesting um 
I would definitely recommend I would definitely recommend the pro button, but I'd also recommend seeing Nostalgia for the Light first because that's okay. um I think one of the crowning achievements of his career. All right. All right. What's next for you? Next for me is John Crowley's Brooklyn. Oh, good. That'll that'll knock one out for me too cuz okay. I saw it just the other day. Um I absolutely love this movie. Uh and I am continuing to love this movie. My mind keeps coming back to it. When I first put it on my letterbox list, it was like number 12. Then it became number six. It is currently sitting at number three. I would not be surprised, David, if it doesn't wind up as number one or two by the time we get to that episode. Uh, be fun to it just, see. it just grows in my mind and how the, okay. I remember, when you were talking about Carol, you were talking about the world created in Carol and you felt like you could step into it and you wanted to step into it. That's how I feel about Brooklyn. This is exactly the conversation my wife and I had on the way home from the (laughs) screening of Brooklyn, that it's very much like Carol in that way. I don't think it's as good as Carol, but I do think it's, um, uh, almost, uh, you know, we, we, we like to, you and I both talk about judging movies by what they set out to achieve. And this movie, like, Perfect tens across the board as far as yeah. what it, the movie it wanted to be. It is exactly that movie. And yeah. uh, it is, I can't imagine, I literally can't imagine anyone not liking this movie. It's, but what's more is that it's just such an, such an interesting story being told. It's, and you know, in the midst, I'll say this, in the midst of all the discussion politically about immigration, legal or otherwise, Brooklyn's an interesting movie to watch because because it really does see things from the point of view of I'd say a child becoming an adult but then also a person going from their place of birth to a new place and trying to embrace that yeah. but then feeling just the perpetual tug of the past it's it's so but but that's the key is her being a certain age I think is the key because I think anybody can relate to thinking back to your parents, the family you, you grew up with, the city you grew up with. That's safe. That's the place you know. That's home. And then you get older, and then you, you know, in my case, you, I got married fairly young, and then Jen and I were in Chicago for a little while, but then we moved out here. And I, I've talked about it more than one lesson for a while. I didn't really, I felt almost homeless because Mm -hmm. it's like, well, where is it? Denver, Missouri, Chicago? Like, where is it? Everybody's spread out. So I felt just like, oh, I don't really have the, the home that people talk about. And then I was, well, no home is here. Yeah. Home is Los Angeles with my wife. Yeah. That's, and, and that is what Brooklyn is all about is that emotional journey. And I just love it. I can see why you connected with it so much. I fucking love that movie so much it's really great um and like i've been doing when i call out some supporting performances julie walters is awesome delightful and apparently again you can only trust not again i haven't said, I said this before but not on this episode um you can only trust imdb trivia so much probably okay. you know that stuff's made up sure but uh i did read there that um julie walters scenes were all done in two days i could see it i mean it's mostly in one location over a long time yeah. every one of her scenes is in the same room especially. yeah um uh, so I could see that happening, but, uh, she's fantastic. And I got to uh, every year, this, this Emery Cohen dude. Yeah. 
after was it two years ago was the place beyond the pines right when he was uh brad the cooper shithead son yeah and i wasn't sure if i liked him because i i hated the character so much that i was like <laughs> it was like begrudgingly admitting it was a good performance when actually yeah. it's a great performance because that's the, that's what made me hate the character so much yeah uh, and then last year, even though no one saw it, he had a small part in the Gambler remake with uh, that's Mark right. Wahlberg. Yes, he He's did. The young young tennis pro. Yeah, and um, he is fantastic as uh, Tony Fiorelli, the uh, American love interest here. And you keep expecting, I keep expecting things to turn bad. Sorry, for things to turn movie bad. Right, right. That Tony is not trustworthy, or that he's like some kind of. That there's something, there's more to him, or one could say less to him than meets the eye. Right. Um, but no, so much of this is just decent people. Not everybody, obviously. Uh, decent people yeah. trying to figure things out. And so often in life, the conflict doesn't come from a person opposing you. It's having to make a choice between two perfectly reasonable choices. And... Uh, Man, oh man, I love this. I did not expect to love this movie. It seemed like a perfectly pleasant little movie. Uh, and then in watching it, it just grabbed me and it is held on to me for the last week. Yeah. Uh, this man, is oh, the enough said of uh, 2015. It might be. Yeah. It might be. All right. Um, next up for me, also a fantastic movie. Uh, Andrew Hague's or Hayes, 45 Years. Okay. Um, you got to see this, by the way. I'm sure it's, it's a very Tyler movie. Um, and I don't mean that in a decisive way because I also found. <laughs> nah, it I know what I am. <laughs> um, I, I I do think it's it's wonderful. Um, it's another movie that my wife and I had a long conversation about uh, on the way home. She also loved it, but we interpreted the end very differently. Interesting. Um, and I it her interpretation breaks my heart. And even though it's as, as much as likely to be the right quote unquote right one as mine is, I so desperately don't want it to be. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I feel like I'm being too cryptic. Um, it's uh, a movie about a marriage. Um, they're, um, Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtney are getting ready to celebrate their 45th anniversary. Um, and then we find out that the, a woman that Tom Courtney had been involved with um, before he met Charlotte Rampling died in a hiking accident um, mm-hmm. and disappeared in the uh, like in the Alps and into a glacier. And because of um, changing climates and stuff melting, her body has been discovered. It's still in mm-hmm. the glacier, but it has been discovered and it has been frozen in time. And um, so here it is, 2015, and this woman from 1962. Um, can be seen now and looks, uh, we never actually see her. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a point. We never actually see her, but presumably looks exactly the same as she mm-hmm. did. Um, and this brings up a lot of stuff for Tom Courtney and subsequently brings up a lot of stuff for Charlotte Rampling in terms of, um, what, um, her life would be. And if her marriage would even exist, um, if yeah. things had gone, if this woman hadn't died, uh, on this mountain in 1962. Um, and so it takes place, Sort of like Andrew Haig's last movie took place over the, a weekend. It was called Weekend. Yeah. Um, this one takes place over a. It's Monday through Saturday, and the movie is chaptered. Like okay. there's, there's a you know a day marker at each uh, thing, and you see the you see it coming like ebbs and flows. You see his you know dealing with it uh, when he first hears about it, and then her wanting to know more about this woman and then maybe learning a little more than she wanted to. And, uh, it 
goes back and forth uh, and um, ends with their anniversary party. That's on the Saturday. It's the last day. Uh, and a very emotional uh, scene that I don't want to talk. I, I, I don't want to give too many spoilers because I don't know okay. how many people had a chance to, to see this. And I, and I do definitely. Yeah. I, I do definitely kind of want to see it because it sounds so emotionally devastating. And I, I have a hard time with movies that are devastating about marriage right? Um, for, yeah. for just personal reasons. Not that my marriage is on the rocks or anything, but I just, you know, when you see movies about like older people who maybe aren't completely happy, like it just, it, it kind of terrifies me. Yeah. Well, I'll, I will say this like weekend. Um, it's not without laughs. It does have some okay. human moments. Um, I mean, they're all human moments, but uh, I very much cherish movies that, even if they are heavy and devastating, have some laughs in them. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, and there's definitely um, some human uh, light uh, touches and laughter uh, in in the movie. I would definitely recommend checking it out. Okay. All right, what's next for you? Next for me is Steve Martino's The Peanuts Movie. Oh, I saw this. Yeah, which uh, was a perfectly pleasant film. Um as somebody who is uh, often felt a little uh, kinship with Charlie Brown, um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I like the, the story and the arc, but I, I really appreciate the animation and that they didn't, they weren't really just paying lip service to the original designs of Charles Schultz. Like they really tried to realize that as much as they could. Yeah. Because there was some backlash against the, you know, this being a like 3d, right. uh, computer animated movie, yeah. um, which seems so anathema to Charles Schultz's, um, yeah. uh, style, but it, you're right. It does. They do look like the characters. Yeah. And, and so there's a simplicity to it. There's a sweetness to it that I really appreciated and enjoyed. I don't really have much else to say except that just, yeah, it, I feel like it really captured the spirit and the, uh, not merely the look, but also the spirit of the, the old, peanuts strips and and i enjoyed i'm happy that i saw it that's really all i have to say all right um i don't know where to start with this next movie except that it is a beautiful goofy fantastic mess and it's one of the best movies of the year it's directed by spike lee it's called chirac people either love or fucking hate (laughs) this movie i can see it it's uh if and if you're not on board almost immediately I can ima- I can't imagine it's you ever getting on board. Tough sledding. Yeah, from then on. It's, uh, it's a it's a modern day updating of a twenty five hundred year old Greek play called Lysistrata, um, that is one hundred percent theatrical in its presentation. Characters speak in rhymes, um, and uh, it's you know Spike Lee doing his uh, you know his big people talking directed to the camera and using wide angle lenses and um, the the costume design is terrific, um, but not uh, the least bit uh, realistic. Like uh, mm-hmm. everyone, um, you know, there's a, a group of women at one point hold themselves up in the uh, National Guard armory for a long period of time, and they seem to go through way more costume changes than they could possibly have brought in with them. But it mm-hmm. doesn't. It doesn't matter. That that's the tone of the movie is that these women are always going to be changing the clothes they wear, and also they're all going to match in some way. Like they're all going to be pretty not in the exact same clothes, but uh, whenever they present themselves as a unified front. They're all going to look essentially the same and they're going to look terrific. Uh, and, um, it's, yeah, it's that kind of, uh, theatrical movie. It is not the least bit subtle. 
there's a character named Oedipus who is constantly talking about his mommy. Like that's the kind of, <laughs> that's the kind of non subtlety we're going for. Um, I feel like I'm, I might wind up hating this movie when uh, I see it. And I do I say when, it, but it's such, <coughs> uh, I mean, it's such a passionate, uh, movie yeah. and, um, it, I, I say that it balances its, um, flights of fancy with its, we were talking about, this is what I said, put a pin in when we were talking about a hateful eight, it's complete lack of subtlety when it gets to, you know, it's not generally about, um, people being, uh, you know, shot and violence in black neighborhoods. It's specifically about that. And people like Eric Garner and Michael Brown and Sandra Bland are specifically named and their pictures are specifically seen in the movie. It is not in any way like it, it, in, in so many ways that being this adaptation of this, um, millennia old, uh, play, um, it, it is, metaphorical but then when it gets to the nitty-gritty of it it is the opposite of metaphorical it's about what it's about and it has um we talked about the um uh bradley cooper scene in joy uh mm-hmm. as being one of the best scenes of the year another one of the best scenes of the year maybe my favorite single scene of the year um is uh, john cusack plays the the priest and his yeah. sermon slash eulogy for jennifer hudson's daughter is killed by a strange stray bullet at the mm-hmm. funeral he gives a long sermon to the point this is the opposite i'm going to keep comparing it to the hateful eight because i love this movie so much more than the hateful eight mm-hmm. where i talked about the hateful eight like slowing down and having this internally long scene in the carriage yeah uh Chirac essentially stops the movie and has what feels like a nearly 15 minute like homily or sermon or eulogy or whatever and john cusack is his character is so passionate and it just is a that's just you're just watching him talk and raise his voice and get passionate for a long time and it absolutely works and it is again my favorite single scene probably in any movie uh this year yeah friend friend of the show jason eakin saw it and did not care for the film but he had a lot of great things to say about that scene. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I feel like John Cusack between love and mercy and this has been like, like he wanted to remind us like more, yeah. much like I talked about when writer two hours ago, um, uh, John Cusack wanted to remind us, Hey, I'm still really great over here. Yeah. Uh, because he's great in, in both those movies. Uh, I don't know how much else to say about it. Um, uh, you know, uh, Angela Bassett also is um, like John Cusack and um, like Wesley Snipes in this movie, who is a smaller part, but a very important part um, doing the best work that all three of them are doing the best work they've done in a long, long time. No. I mean, John Cusack, not as long cause he was just in love and mercy, but that notwithstanding um, they're all fantastic. And I don't, uh, you know, I think this movie is too outrageous and too weird and too off putting to probably a lot of people or too divisive at least to be getting a lot of, uh, awards talk, mm-hmm. but, um, I would definitely, uh, definitely nominate Angela Bassett for supporting actress uh, hmm. of the year. She's, she's, she's fantastic. All right. Uh, I don't know what else to say about it. It's, uh, it's another, it's a full two hours. Um, I wanted it to be longer. It's the kind of movie I never wanted to stop watching, hmm. uh, because it's so inventive and exciting and, and, funny and also infuriating and touching and sad. It's, uh, I mean, it, it feels like, it feels like 
Spike Lee, the Spike Lee who just made do the right thing. Um, just coming out like he doesn't, you know, he, he'd gotten into a period of making, uh, you know, with like in, and not that I saw them, but like inside man and old boy, like, you know, I'm not talking about these are good movies or not the miracle at St. Anna or whatever that one's called, um, making more conventional movies, you know, and this is so not that this is, this is bamboozled. Uh, which I also never saw, but this is the voice of a uh, 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 maverick and a uh, unique filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Although there are some, uh, especially in the neighborhoods depicted in the movie in Southside yeah. of Chicago, people who are very much against the movie um, and accusing it of essentially being the same uh, type of um, out of touch old man, like um, pull your pants up moralizing of, Bill Cosby, you, you know, um, I, I, I can see, uh, I, I can see where they're coming from because it doesn't, uh, the movie is not, um, a, um, it, it, it doesn't pick a side and thoroughly condemn institutionalized racism or whites or, or that sort of thing for what's going on. And yeah. it doesn't not condemn that either. It is a survey of all the things that are wrong that are leading to, um, the, uh, the violence in, um, Chicago, uh, South side of Chicago and neighborhoods across the country that are like it. Although I found that, um, Chicago critics are the first to not like it, I think. And I wonder That's if maybe they're too close to the to problem to, maybe, you know, um, have you been reading about like Rahm Emanuel and what's going on in Chicago right now? Like, uh, uh I know he took too long to come back from Cuba. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there, as it turns out, there was some stuff happening before that. It's, it's really, we'll talk about it off here. It's, it's really interesting yeah, uh, and, uh, angering. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm all for being angry at Rahm Emanuel. Um, <laughs> I feel like there was something else I was going to say about Chirac. Um, much like how it, I never wanted to stop watching, watching it. I also never want to stop talking about it. Well, we're going to need there's, to, there's so much to talk about. It's a great movie. I can't wait for you to see it. All right. So I saw, Okay, so I was at the gym, and they have uh, these screens playing, and usually, usually it's uh, uh, ESPN. Sure. And so, there's, so there's no sound or anything, but they have like the they have the uh, subtitles on while I listen to something else or watch BoJack Horseman on my phone or something. Uh-huh. Um, but I did see something on there, and I recognized it as something that was on Netflix that had struck my fancy so while it was on there i just pulled up netflix on my phone and started watching on my phone what was on the screen in front of me because i wanted to start from the beginning which is a i believe an espn documentary okay called chasing tyson directed by steve Cantor, um and it is all about and it is fascinating it is all about the poor unfortunate story of evander holyfield the only man to win the heavyweight championship uh, four times. And yet, the only, like, if people know him for anything, they know him as the guy who got his ear bitten off by Mike Tyson. Right. People know Mike Tyson. Now, admittedly, they know him for a lot, of ba- a lot of bad things, but they also know him as, like, the champ who just was unbeatable. And a lot of people said that, because Evander Holyfield was coming up at the time that that Tyson was was uh, the heavyweight champ, and, um, and everyone said this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And then uh, I think 
I think uh, then Buster Douglas n- uh, knocked Tyson out very unexpectedly. So now he's the champion. So now Holyfield's like, uh, I guess I'll. I guess I'll go against him. And so he went up against him and won pretty handily. But everyone said, that doesn't count. It's Buster Douglas. That's not the same as fighting Tyson. (laughs) And so literally, uh, Evander Holyfield, who eventually did go up against Tyson and won, and then went up against him again, and then Tyson bit his ear off, um, part of his ear. Um, And then Holyfield would go on to you know, he would lose the belt and then he would win it back. Then he would lose it. Then he would win it back. Like it just, he was this amazing athlete that even Tyson himself in voiceover says like, yeah, Vandal Holyfield is like one of the best of all time, but no one, he had like no legitimacy in the eyes of boxing fans because he never went against Mike Tyson in Mike Tyson's prime. Hmm. And that was it. And there was a time when that was going to happen. And then Mike Tyson went to jail and so just like, all right, I guess. And so by, and Holyfield never really, it never bothered him that much. Like the, the concept of it, of like, I'm not going to be anything until I beat Tyson. He never felt that the way he said it is like, I'm chasing titles. I'm chasing heavyweight champion of the world. That's what I'm chasing. Um, and, but he, but it did bother him that literally nobody would ever recognize him. And that's the other thing. He was also a very soft-spoken, humble guy who compared to Ty- the, the craziness of Mike Tyson and then the flamboyance of Muhammad Ali just didn't give people much to talk about because he was this quiet guy who'd go to church with his mother, you know? And so it's just this, it's a, it's like an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. It's really interesting. Uh, and you get and you get a lot of footage of like the actual uh, matches and and it's just uh, it's really amazing. I, I'm really happy I watched it. Chasing um, Tyson. It's on Netflix. Chasing Tyson. Uh, I should see if because are a lot of those ESPN documentaries. I think so. Yeah, a yeah. lot of those uh, thirty for thirty things. Um, which is funny because it's like that's the name, but there's way more than thirty of them now. Yeah, um, and it's been more than their thirty year anniversary. But the one, if it's on there, that uh, I would recommend you check out um, is called "The Price of Gold," and it's about Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. Oh, interesting! Fantastic. Okay, if, um, I feel like the public has so condemned Tanya Harding in this yeah. thing that this documentary will uh, or make you rethink how you feel about her. And it's a lot of sympathy for Tanya Harding in the way this, the way that the that whole affair got sort of turned into like a class thing where Tanya Harding sort of represented white trash. Yeah. The Nancy, trailer trash. Whereas thing. neither one of them is from a wealthy background. Nancy Kerrigan is not a rich kid. Yeah. It was not a rich kid at all. Um, but it just sort of got painted that way. It's a really fantastic. That's the price of gold. So okay. chasing Tyson and the price of gold. Those I recommend. Uh, next thing I saw is Brooklyn. So what's up for you? Next for me is another Western that I got for Christmas, which is John Ford's my darling Clementine. I've never seen it. <sighs> I, re- I I had read a lot about it leading up to it, and uh, people had said it's like one of the best westerns of all time. It's very good, and it's shot absolutely beautifully. It's black and white, and just the way Ford uses shadow is really marvelous. It's almost the movie's almost shimmering. Um, Henry Fonda plays Wyatt Earp, and so and it's a very very it's a very plays fast and loose with the facts about uh-huh. the OK Corral and stuff like that. And that's, that's fine. Um, Victor mature who I've never seen. I, I realize I've never seen him in anything, uh, plays doc holiday and I don't particularly like his performance and I, and I may not like the way doc is presented, but, um, 
You, there is, there uh, is. Uh, what was behold, that? Beholden to uh, Val Kilmer? Uh, I'm beholden to Dennis Quaid, actually. Uh, I remember I watched oh. Tombstone. I never got into Tombstone. I've seen it like four times. And I've yeah, I never really, it's actually not that great. I've never really gotten into it. And then I watched Lawrence Kasdan's Wyatt Earp, which I've never seen, which is not very good, but Dennis Quaid is great okay. as Doc Holliday. But anyway, well, that's kind of how, that's kind of how I feel about Tombstone is that it's like, Falcon was great in that movie. Sure. It's actually kind of a mediocre movie. Yeah. I think a lot of people, when they talk about Tombstone, I think they're talking only about him. <laughs> uh, the movie is fine, but he's, he's really the kind of the, the shining light of it anyway. Uh, so my darling Clementine is, is, it is a very good, well-made Western. Um, I didn't compared to three ten to Yuma or another Western that I'll be talking about in a moment. Uh, I didn't like it quite as much. Um, but one thing that I find interesting. So David, you remember, so when you're a kid, you're watching, um, you know, Warner brothers cartoons, and then you see a depiction of a character with big buggy eyes and it just talks with like the fairy. And you don't, you have no idea as a kid, you're just like, ah, oh, it's a creepy guy. And only when you get older, you realize, Oh, it's Peter Laurie. I yeah, see what they're yeah. doing. So there's a voice I've been doing that I've just, I've heard is just the all purpose old, like uh, old Western voice okay. for years. Okay. And I can, and I can do it now. It's just, right. it's just this sort of type yeah. of thing here. And I didn't know for years. I, I, I didn't know until last week that it was Walter Brennan, uh, <laughs> that that is him all over the place. No question about it. Uh, and then as it happens, he's also in the next Western that I saw, which I'll talk about in a moment. Okay. So I've gotten a lot of Walter Brennan. Um, I won't talk too long about cartel land, which is the next thing I saw. It's, okay. it's worth seeing. Um, it's the kind of documentary that got, it's some very up close uh, and kind of dangerous footage of, you know, mm. uh, gunfights and stuff like that, where they're very close to the action. Um, but it basically is about um, on either side of the border uh, on the one on the, on the American side, you've got um, people who are they're, I'm not sure what to, I guess vigilante is, vigilante is the word for both of these groups, but mm-hmm. the people who patrol the border who are not the official border patrol. Right. And um, so you've got them like on that the, side. Like the Minutemen? I guess. Is that what they're so, called? Yeah. Um, I, I, this, this group, I, I don't remember what they call themselves. Um, so you've got them on that side. On the, on the Mexican side of the border, you've got a group called the Auto Defensas who decided to rise up and clean out they're starting with their town that they started and clean out the cartels and they hmm. raided the houses and they, um, pushed these people out and did it with, uh, using violent force, and, extreme prejudice. Uh, yeah. And became kind of folk heroes to some people and, um, you know, uh, vigilante criminals to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, they were definitely criminals. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. <laughs> what they did was criminal. Uh, but to some people, the means justify the end. Um, and, uh, I guess it just sort of the movie uh, shows how both things maybe, you know, in, in many ways come from uh, what the owner, what the owner of the motivation would see as a pure motivation. Yeah. But um, the more powerful you get and um, the more you are, you know, walking around with guns patrolling, uh, uh, on your own, the more that you get corrupted. Uh, and so you see these people on both sides, you see them treating suspected criminals, yeah. um, like shit essentially. Uh, 
Which and, speaks to the idea we were talking about before about frontier justice. Uh-huh. And yeah. that's basically what this is. Um, and then uh, the movie sort of all, all the while keeps never lets you forget that while all of this is going on, these guys on the uh, north side on the on the American side are trying to stop the cartels and their drug mules and stuff. And the guys on the south are trying to uh, get the drug to get the cartels where they live. While all of this is going on, the drug trade is the flow of drugs is not stopping. No, of course not. And it's, so it's, uh, it's a harrowing documentary that is very, um, uh, Frank about, um, how awful the cartels make lives for people, make these people, make, make people's lives. And also the harm that can be done in trying to stop them. Yeah. Uh, but it's also a depressingly hopeless documentary at the same yeah. time. Uh, Probably worth seeing, but yeah, be prepared. It's not a not a walk in the park. Just Gotham City down there. Yeah. Um, okay, so the next film I saw, so I've talked about a bunch of westerns already. Mm-hmm. Hateful Eight, Three Ten to Yuma, My Darling Clementine. This next one destroys them. It blows them all the way. I'm all the you way. saw a lot of old stuff. Yeah, I've got my last one is an old stuff, uh, and it was it was Howard Hawks Red River. Oh, starring Montgomery Clift. That's correct. Which I've never seen Red River. Okay. But I do have a weird preoccupation with Montgomery Clift. I am kind of uh, obsessed, or was for a while. I read uh, a biography. Oh, okay. Uh, well, that'll do it. Yeah, he's a real interesting guy. Um, yeah. Not not a nice person, but also <laughs> kind of uh, suffered a lot, and you kind of feel bad for him. Yeah. But we're not talking about Montgomery Clift. Well, we will, because he's great. Okay, well, let's uh, check out the di- the biography. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's called Montgomery Clift. Okay. I think there's another one called Monty that I've read is real trashy and gets into mm. the more seedy side of his life in sure. an exploitative way. So I would recommend people read Montgomery Clift. Read anyway. both. It's good to have all sides. Um, okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's him and John Wayne, and this is this came out in, in 46 or 48. I don't remember exactly. Um, and it's from, by all accounts, it's the first time we've seen, we see John Wayne as not a 100% noble guy. And in fact, in the film, he is a megalomaniacal, egotistical, brutal, uh, rancher Hmm. who is still charming and likable and who's, and who is probably right most of the time. But as he gets older and as he starts to just need control over people, you come to realize, oh, he's getting less right as he's as he gets older. And Montgomery Clift plays his uh, his uh, basically adopted son, though they never put it in those way in those terms. It's clear that's absolutely what it is. But because they never put it in those terms. If they were to ever if he were to ever say, like, I see you as my dad or I see you as my son, if they were to ever actually say that. Uh, before the film, uh, so much of what happens in the film would have, it could have been avoided. Um, but that's not how these characters are. They're not going to declare what they feel or what they want. And I feel like that's very much what makes this film sort of, as far as John Wayne goes, a precursor to the searchers, um, where, there's just this guy, there, this idea, this idea of masculinity, certainly in the old West, but probably in the thirties, forties and fifties of 
Just be bold, be headstrong, and everything will work itself out, which is to say you'll just charge on through and whatever doesn't work itself out, you will have destroyed, probably. Um, it's funny. There's really great action in it. it. You have a really strong sense of the world that is created, Walter Brennan, once again, in it. Um, and it's it's just it's one of the best Westerns I've ever seen. And I mean, it's considered one of the best of all yeah. time. Uh, I didn't I was not expecting it to be as epically remarkable as it is. Everybody yeah. go and watch Red River. It's astounding. Right. You know, they hated each other. Who's that? Uh, John Wayne and Montgomery Clift. I don't doubt it. It <laughs> seemed to uh, I could see that being the case. I think it was because uh, Montgomery on, on Clift one hand is Montgomery Clift representing this new methody style of acting yes. that John Wayne didn't like. But also John Wayne is John Wayne and Montgomery Clift was gay. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that, um, not that I, I don't know if he was out of the closet, but uh, I, I don't think. John I'm sure Wayne there are a lot of rumors, yeah. you know, but, and also like Montgomery Clift, like I guess you could say by, bi- it was bisexual. Like right. he, he yeah. just, whatever, whatever was in yeah. front of him. That guy would, that guy would just fuck anything. That, but it, that's, uh, I read yeah. that in that book, Monty. Yeah. That's right. All right. Um, my last movie. How okay. Many do you have left two, two. Okay. My last movie is directed by it's from 1977. It's an Italian film directed by the Taviani brothers. It's called Padre Padrone, which I guess means father and master. Okay. Um, and it tells the story of a, uh, shepherd's son who was, um, pulled out of elementary school at a young age because his father was like, this isn't doing you any good. I need your help with okay. my sheep and stuff. And so was, forced to grow up um under the thumb of a tyrannical father hmm. and uh so it traces him from uh i don't know 10 years old to about 25 years old um um and uh i, I don't know I, i'm gonna write more because um three three films by the taviani did I say Taviani or Traviani? I can't remember the name of the directors. Three films We've been by going these for brothers. almost three hours. It's fine. Yeah, three films by these directors are, have been restored and will be um, playing in Los Angeles at the end of the uh, end of the month and in early February. So I'm uh, watching some online screeners of these um, restorations to review them. So I'll I'll have more thoughts on this when I review it and uh, be able to compare it to the other two that I uh, need to finish watching. But uh, it's it's very good. It's um, and surprised that I haven't heard much about these um, these filmmakers who are still working. They made a film a few years ago called Caesar Must Die, which uh, that we, sounds familiar. We have a review of it on the website. Um, okay, I think it was Craig, maybe Aaron, who who reviewed it. They're all the um, same to me. <laughs> um, if it's not you, me, or Scott, who gives a shit? <laughs> um, but it's uh, yeah, it's an entrancing and kind of unsettling movie. It's not uh, told in the straightforward uh, fashion. The lead performance of the kid, especially when there's two ages, there's a young him and the, the guy in his twenties, um, is very internal and odd. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's an interesting movie. I'm not sure um, outside of the, it playing theatrically at the end of the month in Los Angeles how easy it is to see, but I would definitely recommend checking it out if you get a chance to see it. Um, and anyway, when we do our next movie journal, I'll talk about it in, uh, in conjunction with the other two that I'm going to finish this week. Okay. All right. That's, I mean, that's it for movies. Uh, I got two more movies. One of them I'll go into more detail about, uh, in this week's episode. Okay. Uh, I've gone 33 years 
without seeing up until now 33 years without seeing tony scott's days of thunder but that changed two days ago okay i've still never seen it okay it's on netflix okay um i could have gone the rest of my life and it would have been just fine with one exception and that is that robert duvall always a pro (laughs) um i a lot of people our age have seen days of thunder and didn't necessarily talk about it in the same way they talk about Top Gun, but they, I don't know. They just, uh, everyone I knew had seen days of thunder and just like thought it was great. I watch it and Cruz and Duvall when they're together, it's something, it's really something special. Like they really have a good chemistry and it's written by Robert town, you oh, know, I didn't like, know that. yeah. So it's not a bad script, but what it comes right down to, I think is maybe I don't care much about racing because I'm not usually in the habit of screaming at my TV screen. Um, and I didn't necessarily this time either, but if I were the type, I would scream probably, I don't know, 10 to 12 times during the movie. I would scream. I don't care. Now, it's not the film's fault that I don't care about racing, but somehow <laughs> there's just something about, and it's, I felt this way about Top Gun as well when I was a kid, is that it's, it's this thing where it's like, oh, this cocky guy, he's doing this thing, and the, his biggest, you know, his biggest uh, rival is himself. He's got to conquer this thing himself. I don't, I don't give a shit. And it's weird because I usually like that kind of thing, but somehow when it's racing and it's the eighties right. and it's a Tom Cruise movie it, as he, when he was becoming a star and was not yeah. yet an actor, uh, I don't care at all. How, how is, does it compare to Rennie Harlan's driven? I didn't you know see it. Yeah, uh, it's no it. torque. I'll say that, which I know is bikes, but still, um, no, it's, uh, I, I didn't see it. I, I don't, I, I just, and I feel bad. I feel like this, this is completely on me. It's not Tony Scott's fault. It's not Robert Towns <laughs> fault. It's not Tom Cruise's fault. Certainly not Robert Duvall's fault. Um, I just don't give a shit at all. And it is rare for me to be this disinterested in a movie, especially one that I can't find a whole lot of fault with. So okay. yeah. So I saw days of thunder because we got to fucking talk about that among well, other movies. Thank you for taking that bullet. Yeah. Let's save something for that episode. Okay. You I don't want to be the only one. You should do you should watch it too. I can't watch it but before we do the episode. Oh shit, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We've been t- talking for 3 hours. Yeah. I Okay. Yeah, you're right. Okay. So lastly, I saw my first 2016 film. Oh, okay. I saw Jason Zada's The Forest. Oh. Okay. Um starring Natalie Dormer. That's correct. I like her. Yeah, I think I, I enjoy her as well. Um, yeah, uh, so much. Uh, it was all there, David. It was all there, ready to be turned into a really wonderful movie. There's the forest, the name of which I cannot recall um, and might not even be able, able to pronounce if I did. Um, there's a forest oh. in Japan yes. where that is viewed as haunted. It is, a pl- it is basically the, um, the Golden Gate Bridge of Japan people will go, will walk into the forest and kill themselves. Yeah. Like dozens, if not over a hundred bodies are found in that forest a year. It's crazy. 
and it's a, and it's real. That's, that's yeah. what's fascinating. So what, so it's like, okay, so not only are you in the woods, the deep, dark, creepy ass woods, but you're also, honestly, you're also in Japan and in the world of supernatural horror, Korea and Japan have cranked out some of the most fascinating movies of the last 20 yeah. years. So you have imagery, you have a tone that you can strike that people are familiar with and, it, and creepy as hell. Um, and, and you have, and on top of everything else, you have the true story element of it. Um, and yet they just completely fumble the ball with characters that I don't care about and that are just forgettable and a story that is completely disposable. Every once in a while, there's a sequence that really, uh, I don't know, that really matches, I don't know, that, that lives up to the premise and the idea and the setting. You know, there's a part where she's walking along and she's been warned that you will see things in these woods, but it's just in your mind. Um, so there's this, so when they walked in, they saw a man hanging from a tree mm-hmm. with a bag over his head. And, um, so they, they cut him down and later on she's walking through the woods and she's just, and she keeps hearing someone say, turn around, Sarah. And she just is looking straight ahead and keeps walking. And as she walks and she'll walk past that guy standing there watching her, he's out of focus yeah, because she's not looking at him. So we're not either, but she knows he's there and we know he's there as you're hearing turn around, Sarah, and you hear turn around, Sarah, there's a good sound design thing. You hear it getting closer and closer and closer until it feels like it's right behind you. Mm-hmm. And it's just a real, like moments like that are what the film. Getting, yeah. My, yeah. Creeped out just thinking if it had that. had more of that, it would have been really effective, but it's, it's mostly just a wasted opportunity. Um, okay. Isn't it weird that there, that this forest that is a, it's a real thing mm-hmm. in Japan that there's two movies about it now. Cause there's the forest and there's Gus Van Sant's the sea of trees. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Um, which I can't wait to see because it got like laughed out of can cause people hated it. Really? Well, <laughs> and, uh, that could be a recipe for me could, loving it. It could be worse than the forest. What? That's gotta be crazy. <laughs> um, all right, let's, uh, real quick TV. I have, I think we each have two things, but I think one of them is the same thing. Okay. Um, uh, I real quick want to mention the last man on earth, which had a, uh, if you haven't caught up and if you have the chance to do so catch up now while it's on its winter break, because it's, uh, I guess half season, you know, winter finale or whatever. The mm-hmm. thing before the break was one of the best episodes they've ever done. And, uh, it's, uh, getting to the last man on earth being what I, uh, what I want it to be, which is a movie that or a show that is uh, a, a sitcom and a goofy high concept um, uh, kind of surreal sitcom, but also a real story about the last survivors of some sort of uh, devastating plague uh, and what it's like to live in a post uh, apocalyptic uh, yeah. world. So uh, what's the first one for you? Um, and I mentioned it a little bit uh, with um, Mariah, uh, Jessica Jones. Okay. Which, uh, I'm only a few episodes in, but I've been enjoying quite a bit. It took me a minute to get on board with not merely uh, Kristen Ritter, but also the character that they're giving her to play. Um, like they're really trying to hit how hard boiled she is. Uh, and it took me a couple episodes to get on board with it. And, and, but now I am. And, 
and it's just a really it's it's a really well put together show. I'm a big fan of what Marvel is doing on Netflix. Like I really love Daredevil. I'm really responding to Jessica Jones. There's just something by by acknowledging that TV is smaller and more and more intimate intimate than movies. And so, you know, you're not you're not having interdimensional fights in these shows on Netflix. They take place in New York, right. Hell's Kitchen specifically, and it's you're de- you're still dealing with life and death uh, life and death stuff, but like who is the kingpin, you know, in comparison to Thanos? Like right. he's he's nothing, but in the lives of these people, he's everything. Mm-hmm. And so I I like that the film uh, the the shows are are to- are paring things down, but still understanding how Im- how important this stuff is to the people involved. And I feel like Jessica Jones and the 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 villain that is emerging from that, played by David Tennant, um, is really shaping up to be a really great show. I'm really I'm really liking it. So that's okay. So that's my first one. My second one is the finale of uh, the Amazing Race. And my second one is the entirety of the amazing race. Um, so will you, so you, do you agree with me that this is one of the greatest seasons they've ever done? Maybe top two greatest seasons they've ever done. It's pretty great. It's a really, really great season. Um, I, I won't argue with that. Now you had for the last several months, for the last several months, you've had a number of questions for me. Like, like you said, have you seen it? I've got stuff to ask you, um, and I, I had not remember. seen it. It was probably mostly about uh, Justin and Diane. Okay, um, your thoughts? Well, I think she needs to get far, far away from him. Okay. Um, not. That, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe she's an awful person too. But you couldn't. She's so eclipsed by his um, personality. She yeah. needs to get away from him until he gets the help that he needs. Because he is like. I mean, I feel like. It, it's it, it would be wrong to just laugh at him for being an obnoxious uh, uh, asshole or goofball because I think there's something wrong. <laughs> Jen and I were hypothesizing that he might be, and I and I don't say this jokingly. I'm I'm not trying to make light of it or anything like that. We were thinking that he could possibly be bipolar. Um, like yeah, when it, you see how just the extreme reactions he has to winning and losing. Um, that like when he's down, he's all the way down. Right. And when he's up, he's manically excited. And, yeah. And that's, that's not his fault, but he needs to learn how to keep an eye on that. So he's not, when he's down, taking it out on his fiance. Yeah. Cause he's, when he's happy, he's happy. But as yeah. soon as things go wrong, he turns on her every time. Yeah. Uh, and I felt so bad for her, but then, I mean, she's, I guess, She's, and and who knows different. how long they've been together. It yeah. might be that she she knows what to expect. She knows how to manage it. And these are just high. This is just a high stress situation. I'm sure if you and I, with our respective wives or with each other, frankly, were on the amazing race, yeah. we'd probably snap at our wives and each other, or they at us. You know, hopefully it's, not too much. Hopefully, what we'd be more like is uh, who stealth became one of my favorite teams. Um, is it Tiffany and Krista? Yeah, the, because, the cheerleaders. Yeah, because yeah. when things got dire and, and stressful and down to the last minute, uh, and one of them couldn't complete a challenge, the other one didn't lose her temper, didn't <sighs> yell at her, 
went over and told her how much she believed in her and how yeah. great she was and uh, how important her friendship was and all this and that she's an, a great person. Like that's who I would want to be if I were on the amazing race. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really good season. There were a lot of, t- a lot of teams that I really liked. Unfortunately, they, uh, the ones I really liked went out early. Um, like the dancing brothers yeah. and the two little guys, I hate to put it in those, in those terms, but just, uh, people that are very, they're very charismatic and fun to watch and that sort of thing. The, the mother and son wound up being a team that I liked more than I thought I was going to. Um, yeah, I don't know. I found, I found her a little bit <laughs> obnoxious. She was obnoxious, but she wasn't remarkably negative, you know, between the two of them, he was probably the more negative one. And she was, she was trying to, be, if anything, she was obnoxious in, in trying to show support, you know, and trying to probably undo some right. of the stuff that she had done to him yeah. years before. Yeah. For know. those, I, I can't imagine anyone still listening. Who hasn't watched it because you're getting so insane. I can't imagine anyone still listening. <laughs> yeah. But, um, they, uh, this was someone who had, uh, their mother, mother, son team, the son had come out to his mother and essentially been rejected years before. And they yeah. were getting back together. Recently. Yeah. And I, I feel like mission accomplished, like almost any time yeah, there's like a mother and son or whatever, people who go on the amazing race, to like rekindle something. It usually doesn't go well. This one, right. I think they did. Yeah, no, I think you're probably right. Um, yeah. Uh, I just found it like in certain, when things we, again, when things would get stressful, yeah. I felt like she would snap into like, I'm your mom mode. and be like, listen to me when it's like, Hey, he's an adult now. <laughs> like, yeah. You're a team here. Uh, I found that kind of obnoxious, but he didn't strike me as super adult either. That's the other thing. Yeah, like, he seemed a little true. petulant at times, but that's, um, you know, but I still liked them and I didn't expect to. So we don't want to talk all night about amazing race, but I want to ask you about my favorite team in a, not a, I don't actually support them way, but the team that I hated and then grew to love watching. And that's the paparazzi <laughs> because they <laughs> were so awful to like, we're talking about other teams. Like when the stress is on, like yeah. if one thing, if oh, there yeah. was one, even the slightest thing, like, you know, someone needs to tie their shoe, they would turn on each other so quickly <laughs> yeah. that it became hilarious to me. Uh, it wasn't funny. I didn't find it funny. Jen and I were just like, how are these people making it so far? This is so wrong. Can't the show just somehow intervene? Can't they just say, Hey, look, we've never done it before, but you're off the show. Um, but it's good television. It's good television. I get it. But you know what? In the end, like the team that I really wanted to win did win. Like to me, they're who I want to be. Uh, because they, they're positive. They're encouraging. Yeah. They like, to my knowledge, they snapped at each other once at the very last task of the very last episode when the oh, right. when they were first, but this team number two was gaining on them quite a bit. And she's like, you know what? Given that circumstance, I'll 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 let it slide. Yeah. Um and they're just and they just were so positive and they're so they're much the and they're fun dorks to watch. Maybe ever on the show, but no in a question good, about in a good it. Way. 